This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia. Oh! 
or good morning to you or good day to you, wherever you happen to be as you're listening to this radio program. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. We do this every Monday night from 11 p.m. until 2 a.m., and we're coming at you again tonight live from the beautiful studios here in downtown Columbia, Missouri, 915 East Broadway. Swing on down here sometime. If you've ever got the gumption, we always have the door open, and we invite uh, people to come down here to the station, check it out, and see what we're all about. All right, uh, tonight my guest uh, coming up in about 55 minutes is Michael Sarita. Uh, I take that back. His name is David Sarita. I'm confused with my guest next week, which is Michael Tsarion. But uh, at any rate, uh, tonight David Sarita and uh, David and I, uh, he has a real interesting background, David does, and we're going to be talking about a lot of different topics, everything from ecology. The guy's planted over a million trees uh, in his life. Um, but uh, there's some other interesting things as well that he's involved with, including alternative energy and uh, UFOs, believe it or not. There have been quite a few um, really big stories, actually, in the world of flying saucers over the last couple of weeks. And we're going to talk about a few of those stories as we move through this first hour in preparation for David Sarita. But uh, he's somebody who is right on top of all this stuff, and we'll be able to... Um, uh, give us some real interesting information tonight, I have a feeling. So that's coming up in just a little while. And let's do a quick thank you to Debbie Johnson, as always, a wonderful job on Free Range Radio Theater tonight doing the wonderful holiday special, It's a Wonderful Life, and next week, actually, an hour of Dr. Seuss. So real cool stuff from Debbie, and she'll be changing things up at the beginning of the year, I'm sure, as well, with new and interesting uh, pieces of radio theater that she brings to you every week, Monday at 10 p.m. Of course, before uh, Debbie, you heard Kelvin and uh, the good doctor, Jazz Plus Blues Equals Soul. That's on every Monday from 7 o'clock until 10. We had Tech Radio before that, Jeff Wheeler on before that. We got the Boogeyman coming up after me, so uh, lots going on on Monday night here. And uh, I should mention... Open Mic Radio, my friend Casey Oleonik's program. Uh, actually, it's a segment of his program that he does every week on Wednesdays. And I'm going to be featuring some music tonight from a couple of local uh, guys here in the mid-Missouri area. Derek Jenkins, uh, some people may be familiar with Derek. He was the uh, singer and uh, one of the songwriters in the band In Thicket, uh, but also a real talented uh, individual performer. Derek's actually out of town uh uh, left, I don't know, a month or two ago, I have a feeling, if I remember right, and went to Spain for a while and is doing some uh, some work and some play over there. But we're going to play some of his music tonight on the program that was recorded uh, sometime over the last year on Open Mic Radio, Casey Oleonic's show uh, on Wednesday nights at 10 o'clock. And we will have one other artist tonight we'll be featuring as well uh, that Casey discovered uh, or at least uh, put on my radar screen and uh, his name is Mike Kane. And so we'll be listening to music from Derek Jenkins and Mike Kane tonight, both a couple of local uh, talents from the uh, mid-Missouri area here. And again, thanks to uh, Casey and his program, Blues in the Night, which, which uh, features open mic radio and uh, brings in uh, talented men and women from around the world, actually, uh, that sit in and play with uh, uh, with Casey on the air. And maybe I should rephrase that, but I think I'll just uh, move along. All right, so thanks uh, to everybody listening over the Internet. Thanks for all the emails. 
Thanks for the phone calls and letters, everything that I've gotten from listeners over the last couple of weeks. I appreciate it all and take that stuff to heart and we'll try to incorporate it into future programs. We have uh, some wonderful things happening on the internet on the website. If you go, um, if you go on the web at www.mikehagan.com, that's mikehagan.com, you can click through a little bit tonight and you'll find information about tonight's show. You'll also find information about next week's show. You'll find a bunch of great news stories that we've put up over the last few days, some of which I'll be talking about over the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Uh, we've got a space weather page that we're sort of still, um, uh, sort of still under construction, but there's going to be some great stuff uh, on the space weather page. I just got a great link from my friend Chris Case, who uh, has a wonderful website of his own called floatingworldweb.com. Uh, and we'll have links up to Chris Case's uh, stuff and the technosis material as well. And for people out there uh, who don't understand what I'm talking about, well, you'll just have to uh, click around until you find uh, technosis and those links over to Floating World, uh, Floating World Web. So great stuff uh, coming from all over the place, and I appreciate it. Thanks to everybody who sends that stuff. All right, what else happening? Uh, the website, yeah, www.mikehagan.com. And you can reach me via the website if you have anything you want to share with me, or you can always send me an email at uh, mikehagan.com, or actually directly send email at orbitradio, O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O. That's orbitradio at AOL.com. And uh, I'll respond to you as long as you're relatively civilized. All right, tonight, David Sarita. Next week... Michael Sarion, and uh, those shows will sort of dovetail with one another, actually, I think, because uh, although next week will be more of an esoteric look at some of this stuff, I think Michael Sarion, very interested in ancient mythology, will be talking a lot about uh, early Christian traditions, Gnosticism, uh, and some interesting ideas that uh, are tied in with these early uh, and old Concepts, much of which has been lost and much of which uh, Michael Tserion is going to bring back to the surface next week. And uh, probably controversial, and I'm not sure exactly how I uh, uh, view his material exactly yet, but uh, we're going to let him air it out and let people decide for themselves what they think of it, okay? So that's coming up next week. Again, you can find information about all this stuff on the website. And let's see, the 19th, the week after that, Graham Hancock, a show that I'm very excited about. And uh, should be a great program coming up on December 19th. One of the icons in uh, Egyptology and uh, ancient mystery, Graham Hancock, a guy who's written a number of uh, uh, very uh, profound books over probably a 25, 30-year career at this point. And he'll be on the program on the 19th talking about his new book called Superstition and uh, some of the amazing discoveries and revelations that he has come across in his career studying strange and the unknown and the deep ancient past of this planet. All right, uh, we've got a couple weeks uh, around the holidays, not sure what's going on, going to be busy, so we'll just see how those uh, come around. Mark Pesky, uh, toward the beginning of the year on January 9th, another program I'm really looking forward to. Mark Pesky, of course, uh, one of the techno gurus of our age, the man who invented VRML. Uh, among other things, and we'll be talking uh, high-tech 
for sure when Mark is on the program. I talked to Joseph Chilton Pierce a couple of weeks ago. Did a uh, did an interview with him actually in uh, toward the end of November. I have to edit that, get that on the air. We talked about uh, childbirth and intelligence and imagination and uh, Paradise Newland. A uh, show coming up with Paradise in just a little while, a couple of weeks, lots more to come as uh, things roll forward. So all that's coming up on Radio Orbit over the next weeks and months, and uh, 2006 promises to be a really exciting year as well because I've made a whole bunch of contacts over the last few months, and many of those will be uh, will turn into programs and turn into guests over the next few months, and some are just, uh, uh, just astonishing. I'm really looking forward to bringing a lot of this material to you guys. So... So hopefully uh, you stick around and enjoy it as well. Okay, what else are we going to do tonight? Uh, we talked about Derek and Mike Kane. There's a beautiful moon, actually, uh, that I saw rising around 7.30, 8 o'clock. And actually, the moon is in what we call conjunction with Venus. And I won't talk uh, too much about it. We'll mention it a little bit more when we do space weather in a while here. But anyway, a beautiful moon rising in the south and uh, Venus sort of setting uh, in the south at the same time as the moon rise rose and they go, uh, they pass very close to one another and have uh, for the last couple of days and will for the next couple of days uh, throughout uh, the week and toward the end of the week. So uh, anyway, about a nice nice sliver of close to a quarter moon out there and beautiful sight in the uh, in the south and in the uh, in the south and in the east. Okay, so uh, let's get things going right away with a little bit of music. As I said, we're going to be featuring, uh, featuring Derek Jenkins and Mike Kane tonight, a couple of local musicians. And we will start things out with Derek Jenkins. This is a, uh, a piece called Figure from Flutter. And we'll do one more after this called Look But Don't See. But uh, two songs right off the bat here from Derek Jenkins, local talent from Columbia, Missouri, and uh, independent music as usual, here on Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike Hagan, and enjoy. Spit it out Because intentions are clouded now And your silence speaks louder Than the one from Forgive 
breaking apart in different scenes. All right, that was Derek Jenkins, live music uh, recorded sometime in, uh, I think, the springtime, actually, of 2005 on Casey Olyarnik's program, Blues in the Night, which can be heard every Wednesday at 10 p.m. until midnight. And as I said earlier, Casey includes a segment called Open Mic Radio in his show, typically on Wednesdays, and uh, that was music recorded on OMR a few months ago, Derek Jenkins. Uh, the former uh, singer, songwriter uh, for In Thicket, now uh, somewhere abroad in Europe, I think in Barcelona or somewhere in Spain, something like that. So anyway, good stuff, and thanks to Casey for making that available to us tonight to play for you all. Okay, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit, and let's do space weather. I think that's what we'll do here, and then we'll get our guest on the phone, talk about a few other stories in the news, and then get busy with David Sarita at the top of the hour. All right, uh, let's see. It was a small sunspot last Monday when I spoke with you all. It was uh, designated as number 826. Well, over the last seven days, that thing morphed into this big, giant group of sunspots and is now actually uh, sort of falling apart uh, from that. But in between, it's amazing what happened in the last week. It went from... Uh, virtually no activity on the sun, this little bitty group of sunspots that nobody was really talking about. All of a sudden, it really just exploded. There were a bunch of big flares. And uh, this particular sunspot grouping got really active and really large and then uh, sort of uh, did the disappearing act as quickly as it showed up. And it's now uh, sort of coming apart, although there may be some more interesting... uh, displays from this particular area on the surface of the sun over the next few days. But at any rate, uh, the spot is right now losing both surface area and uh, the magnetic complexity that it had over the last few days. And solar activity will probably return back to the lower levels that we saw uh, a week, week and a half ago. Uh, But there was some amazing photography taken of that particular group. And again, as always, you can check that stuff out at www.spaceweather.com. Dot com. All right. Uh, yeah, that, that particular sunspot area was one of the most dynamic groupings that we've seen in quite a long time. And it really uh, changed quickly over a very short period of time. So that was pretty, pretty cool stuff. And you can watch that uh, continue if you have uh, a decent filter on your telescope for looking at the sun or if you have uh, the poor man's solution like I use, uh, a welder's 
uh, a set of welder's goggles or uh, a welder's mask. And as I said uh, earlier, Venus and Moon were in conjunction. Uh, the actual conjunction uh, was yesterday, uh, the actual astronomical conjunction, but uh, the appearance uh, is similar for the next few days. And basically, uh, as the Moon is rising, uh, Venus uh, passes right by it very closely um, in the southeast, and that was really pretty tonight, actually. We were able to see it here in Colombia. The clouds subsided for long enough, where we, or at least I was uh, able to see that tonight, and it was really pretty. So, All right, what else is going on in the skies? Uh, there's an asteroid, 2005 XA, that uh, is doing a near-Earth flyby today, actually passing within .01 astronomical units of our planet. An astronomical unit is the distance between the Earth and the Sun, so 1 AU is 93 million miles, plus or minus. So when they say that something is coming uh, within 0.01 astronomical units, well, that's basically 1% of 93 million, which, is, which means inside of a million miles, 930,000 uh, miles, which is really uh, just a whisper in cosmic terms. And uh, it's about uh, actually four times the distance between the moon and the earth. The moon's about a quarter of a million miles away uh, from, uh, from the earth, a little bit more than that. But anyway, so this particular asteroid that we know about, 2005 XA, is going to be cruising by uh, sometime tonight, and we'll get within a million miles of the planet. And as I said, that's pretty close, and there's all kinds of things flying around. Speaking of uh, uh, near-Earth flybys, it is uh, Gerard... Kuiper, uh, his 100th birthday, or would have been his 100th birthday, he died in 1973, but Gerard Kuiper uh, was an American astronomer. He was uh, uh, considered to be the father of modern planetary science. He had a wide range of skills, but knew a whole lot about the solar system. Uh, he discovered that uh, Titan's, uh, one of the moons of Saturn, which is a, a moon called Titan, that Titan actually had... Uh, an atmosphere. He discovered the carbon dioxide atmosphere on Mars. He discovered uh, Uranus's satellite Miranda. And uh, I think he actually uh, discovered one of Neptune's moons as well. I can't remember which one it was. Um, but most famous, uh, Gerard Kuiper, is uh, for discovering this thing that eventually became uh, known as the Kuiper Belt. And uh, it is sort of a disc-shaped region uh, outside of the orbit of Neptune, uh, which is considered a source for short-period comets. And short-period comets are comets that uh, make complete orbits around the sun in less than 200 years. That's how that's defined. But anyway, lots of uh, short-period orbits come from this area called the Kuiper Belt. And anyway, so uh, that, that actually is sort of relevant because... There's a story that I'm going to talk about uh, in a few minutes after the break here that uh, has to do with a new comet that was just discovered a few days ago. And it's a real interesting story, and it's one that David might be interested in as well. So I think I'll wait till I get him on the line before I talk about that story. Uh, but it has to do uh, with uh, the Kuiper Belt, which we're just talking about right now. So anyway, that's what's happening in the stars and the skies above our heads. We have um, lots of other things uh, going on. If you go to the website at MikeHagan.com 
and click on the Space Weather page, you will uh, very soon, if not now, uh, be able to see lots and lots of different links and uh, uh, pieces of information and imagery uh, that has to do with all of these different topics. The so, uh, all right. I didn't want to take a break this early, but I think that it's probably best to do that. And we'll uh, put some music on here. I think we'll play a couple of songs by Mike Kane. And then we'll come back and we'll read some news stories. I'll talk to you a little bit more about David Sarita, and then we'll uh, get to him at the top of the hour, okay? All right, so we will... What do I want to play here? This is a song appropriately titled Under the Moon. Mike Kane, more local independent music on Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagen. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This one's called Under the Moon. And again, it's Mike Kane. Mike Kane on Open Mic Radio. And you 
Oh, yeah. All right. Cool stuff. That's Mike Kane. Uh, again, local independent music uh, coming to you here on Radio Orbit. It is about 11.40 in the p.m. on December the 5th, and this is Mike Hagen with you as always. As I said, uh, Mike Kane uh, from Open Mic Radio, Casey Olianik's program uh, recorded earlier this year uh, live here at the station. Okay, a couple of uh, interesting stories, actually lots of interesting stories and news over the last week, and uh, I'm going to talk about a couple of those with you right now. And there's a whole bunch more of this stuff, and if you want to go check it out in depth, most of these articles I won't have the time or the gumption to read them in full. So go over to MikeHagan.com and click over on the news uh, page there, and you can see links and uh, synopsises of all of these uh, and more stories uh, that we've got collected and posted there on the website. And uh, uh, I didn't uh, uh, take the moment that I should to thank my webmaster, who has been uh, doing such an amazing job for me over the last couple months, uh, Larry Norager. Thanks, as always, to Larry uh, for making all this stuff possible. I wouldn't be able to do a lot of it uh, without, without him. So thanks again, Larry. And, uh, yeah, real cool stuff on the news page. I love it. I think it's my personally my favorite part of the new website because uh, I, I love uh, kind of scouring the web for all these sort of interesting stories and finally having a place uh, to post them. And uh, it's real cool stuff. So, All right. Um, you know, I mentioned when we did Space Weather just a few minutes ago, we were talking about Gerard Kuiper and the Kuiper Belt. Uh, and hopefully the pronunciation of that is right. I know people pronounce his name a little bit differently sometimes. But at any rate, uh, it would have been his 100th birthday, I think, today, maybe tomorrow. But Actually, I think it was today. But one of the reasons that uh, I brought that up was because just a couple of days ago, as a matter of fact, there was a um, an announcement about a comet that was discovered. And it was discovered because of a meteor shower uh, that happened. And I'm going to read a little bit about this uh, particular story to you here. This is from uh, the SETI Institute, S-E-T-I. And the title says, Unexpected Meteor Shower Reveals Presence of Potentially Dangerous Comet. SETI Institute scientist and meteor expert Peter Jenkinson's reports in a telegram issued by the International Astronomical Union <coughs> Union's Minor Planet Center that an unexpected burst of meteors on October 5th 2005 had occurred, which betrayed the presence of a thus far unknown, potentially Earth-threatening comet. Uh, The burst of meteors radiated from a direction on the border of the constellation Draco and Camelopardalis, and a new shower is called the October Camelopardalids. The meteors were caused uh, by dust ejected by an intermediate long-period comet during its previous return to the Sun, and... um, uh, there you have it. So this, uh, we'll have to find out more about this, but it's a pretty interesting story, and there's not a whole lot uh, being said about it uh, officially. But anytime you see a potentially dangerous comet in the title of a story, uh, and then um, especially one that has just been discovered, it always sort of makes my radar go up. So, uh, so that's happening, <clears throat> and you can. Uh, read more about that uh, at the SETI Institute's website uh, at SETI.org, or you can just link over there from my site as well, okay? Here's one for you. Uh, mounds of controversy at Ohio Club. 
the Mound Builders Country Club has been experiencing an unwanted popularity over the past few years. Besides an 18-hole golf course and clubhouse, the private facility in Newark, Ohio, is home to the 2,000-year-old lunar observatory fashioned by the ancient Hopewell Indians. Since 1933, the members have played golf on the one-time sacred land. Only recently was the artifact discovered, and that's where the trouble began for the club. And uh, you can continue the story on your own, but you can imagine the trouble for the club. And uh, uh, quite frankly, well, you know, let it uh, let it roll out as it may. But uh, I don't know. That can't be good. Uh, that can't be good mojo. You know, uh, swinging golf clubs at a private elitist institution uh, on top of a sacred indigenous uh, land (laughs) and artifacts. So my uh, advice would be to pick up your sticks and go play somewhere else. All right, what else do we have in the news here? We talked about this unexpected meteor shower that showed that comet. That's an amazing thing. Um, Oh, speaking of uh, more controversy, this is from Lima, Peru. Uh, The country of Peru is preparing a lawsuit against Yale University to retrieve artifacts taken nearly a century ago. This is sort of a a dovetailing story with the one that we just read. Uh, In any any case, uh, to retrieve artifacts taken nearly a century ago from the Inca Citadel of Machu Picchu, a Peruvian cultural official said Wednesday. Peru in recent years has held discussions with Yale seeking the return of nearly 5,000 artifacts, including ceramics and human bones, that explorer Hiram Bingham dug up during three expeditions to Machu Picchu in 1911, 1912, and 1914. And again, uh, a much deeper story there. But um, the uh, indigenous uh, peoples uh, sort of flexing their muscles a little bit. And there's so much going on these days about the ancient past. And as we talk about on the program a lot of the time, we, we, we know so little and we've been cut off from most of the knowledge of our of our past for so long that uh, uh, it's really um, a sort of puzzle trying to put together what was really happening at some of these uh, some of these stages in the past. For a long, long time, we've been told uh, that nothing was happening and that history is linear, and that uh, we basically went from a uh, a primitive and uh, less sophisticated critter to a more sophisticated one. And it was just simply uh, one advance on top of the next that led us to where we are today. Well, it turns out that that's really not the way history is. History is more cyclical, and there have been ups and downs and uh, uh, tremendous civilizations, apparently, that have existed long before our own, some of which apparently also had uh, technologies of sorts, maybe not technology the way we might describe it, but certainly technologies of a sort, uh, because they were able to do amazing, amazing things. And uh, Machu Picchu is uh, a stunning example of uh, what I'm talking about here. Uh, if you've ever been there, you may die from astonishment. Uh, but uh, it is an amazing, amazing place, and the uh, the pictures. Uh, alone are unbelievable, and uh, it's a place that everyone should have a chance to uh, to see and take in with respect and with awe 
because it's awe-inspiring. And there are many, uh, there are many uh, instances of this sort of thing that pepper our history. There are locations all around the world <clears throat> that have absolutely mind-boggling uh, artifacts that sit on them. And uh, we may be talking about some of this stuff tonight with David, as a matter of fact. Uh, he, uh, as I was looking through David's website, by the way, uh, which is <clears throat> also uh, something you can link to right from the Mike Hagan uh, website, uh, David Sarita's website is www.ufonasa.terra-ent.com. And again, you can get there directly from my site. But uh, one of the things that David uh, talks about is uh, a phenomenon and an artifact uh, called the Dropa Stones. And these are something that was found in, uh, in an area in China uh, sometime back. <clears throat> and we'll probably talk with David about it, but uh, uh, they are amazing artifacts uh, in and of themselves. So lots of interesting things in the past and things that we still have much to learn about, as we find out all the time. You know, we learn, we learn all the time how little how little we actually know. All right, uh, let's see. I've got two more stories <clears throat> that I want to talk about here. And they are both uh, mind-benders, at least for this broadcaster. Uh, the first one comes from Princeton University. This is a, a press release that was uh, put out on the 30th of November. And I've been reeling ever since I read it. And I'm going to read a relatively good chunk of it for you here. Uh, nanotech discovery could have radical implications. Princeton Group outlines novel mathematical approach. Uh, it has been 20 years since the futurist Eric Drexler daringly predicted a new world where miniaturized robots would build things one molecule at a time. The world of nanotechnology that Drexler envisioned is beginning to come to pass with scientists con conjuring new applications daily. Now, Salvatore Torcato, a Princeton University scientist, is, pr is proposing turning a central concept of nanotechnology on its head. If the theory bears out, it could have radical implications not just for industries like telecommunications and computers, but also for our understanding of the nature of life. Torcato and colleagues have published a paper in the, no in the November 25th issue of Physical Review Letters, the leading physics journal. Uh, outlining a mathematical approach that would enable them to produce desired configurations of nanoparticles by manipulating the manner in which the particles interact with one another. This may not mean much to the man on the street, but to the average scientist, it is a fairly astounding proposition. In a sense, this would allow you to play God, because the method creates on the computer new types of particles whose interactions are tuned precisely so as to yield a desired structure said Pablo de Benedetti, a professor of chemical engineering at Princeton. Uh, and I'll expand on this a little bit. Some, some of the language is, uh, is not really uh, made for the layman. Um, but the bottom line is this, is that nanotechnology, uh, the idea of manufacturing via nanotechnology has always been this idea of trying to build from the ground up, trying to build uh, not by breaking things down, uh, in other words, um, as we historically have done, by digging metals out of the ground or creating glasses and ceramics and 
uh, uh, plastics and all this stuff out of other things. The idea is that you actually build it one molecule at a time uh, from the ground up. And the standard idea about this is that it would work the way nature works. And that basically means that trial and error. And when, when a particular configuration that's desired comes about, uh, well, then you have it. But you sort of have to trial and error in order to get the particular configuration. It would be like, well, if you were trying to build a house, uh, you might end up with a garage first, or you might end up with an apartment building, or, or you know, it's just sort of a metaphor, but you would end up with something not exactly what you wanted. The idea that is being... <clears throat> Uh, the notion that is being expressed here by these guys at Princeton is that they have found a way to actually uh, make those interactions precise and tune them so that they actually do what you want the first time. You don't have to go through this uh, this trial and error uh, thing. And it basically means you can make a blueprint for something and then and then build it. And this includes things like new materials, you know, and it has to have uh, implications in the fields of energy as well. So anyway, uh, just an astounding article that came out of Princeton University just a week ago. And this uh, idea is called self-assembly. <coughs> Pardon me, I have a little bit of a cold here still. I'm lingering on for the last couple of weeks. And I better drink some water and try to uh, loosen my throat up a little bit. But uh, at any rate, this idea of self-assembly um, is the uh, the idea that uh, molecular building blocks um, don't have to be put together in some kind of miniaturized factory-like fashion. It means that under the right conditions, they'll actually spontaneously arrange themselves into... Uh, you know these other these other structures, and the idea is to be able to instruct them on how to do that. And if you can do that, well, it appears that literally the sky is the limit at that point. At least to me, it does as a layman. Uh, so we'll have to see what that means uh, for the rest of the rest of you out there. And I'd be interested if you have any any responses uh, and uh, comments about that. You can always reach me via email at orbitradio at aol.com or send me a note via the uh, via the website, okay? All right, uh, the last story that we'll cover here before we uh, take a quick short break and then bring back our guest David Sarita uh, tonight is a story that I actually covered last week. I talked about it uh, briefly. I uh, didn't cover it at length because I thought that we probably would tonight and I'm glad that we that I didn't because it's sort of been cooking for the last week and uh, as they say in the business this one sort of is getting legs and here's the story or at least the headline Uh, relations with ET former Canadian Minister of Defense asks Canadian Parliament to hold hearings on relations with alien ET civilizations On September 25, 2005, in a startling speech at the University of Toronto that caught the attention of mainstream newspapers and magazines, Paul Hellyer, Canada's defense minister from 1963 to 1967 under Nobel Prize uh, laureate Prime Minister Lester Pearson, publicly stated, UFOs are as real as the airplanes that fly over your head. 
and this just happened. Uh, and it is amazing, an amazing statement coming from uh, a person that held that position. And I'm not. Uh, I, I, I'm really excited to, to talk to David about this particular story. I'm, I'm not really. Uh, I don't know where I stand on it yet. There have been. An, <clears throat> There have been a number of occasions in the past where I thought uh, something was big news <clears throat> in this uh, this strange uh, field of ufology. <clears throat> there have been statements made by other governments that I thought were going to make uh, more uh, of a ripple than they did, but this one uh, seems to be significant. And uh, uh, certainly, any time a defense minister of a major Western nation comes out and makes a statement like that. You have to at least think twice. Uh, the last time anything like this happened um, with regard to a defense minister uh, is another statement that always astounds me, and that's the one that William Cohen made in 1997 at that, uh, uh, that counterterrorism conference where he mentions and basically uh, confirms the existence of electromagnetic uh, weaponry that can be used uh, to do things like trigger earthquakes or uh, or volcano, uh, volcanoes or manipulate the weather. <clears throat> and that was the former Defense Secretary uh, William Cohen, who who was Bill Clinton's uh, secretary. <clears throat> so anyway, really interesting stuff. So we'll come back and we'll talk with David Sarita about this stuff in just a minute. We're going to play one more song here at the top of the hour. And uh, come back with our guest. You can get a leg up on everybody if you go on the web right now. Go over to MikeHagan.com, and right there on the front page, you will see uh, a story about tonight's guest, and you will also be able to link over to his website. And I'm going to give that out one more time, the actual website, uh, just in case you can't uh, get over to my site. But uh, David Cerrito can, uh, Cerita can be reached at www.ufonasa.terra. T-E-R-R-A-E-N-T dot com. And uh, again, uh, you can also click right over there from, uh, from my set, okay? All right, we'll be back with David in just a few moments. In the meantime, one more song here from Derek Jenkins, Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. We'll be back in just a few minutes with our guest tonight. This is called The Golden Age. One more time, Derek Jenkins on Radio Orbit.
That's right. You are listening to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. My guest tonight was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. His name is David Sarita. He has been interested in space, science, technology, uh, religion, philosophy, many of these things since he was just a young man or a boy. He's had uh, uh, an amazing background and an amazing history and we're going to let him tell us a little bit more about it but uh, uh, he's involved in some really interesting things and uh, tonight we're going to talk about a lot of them including ecology, alternative energy and UFOs among others. Uh, so without further delay let's say hello to David Sarita. David, hey thanks very much for being on Radio Orbit tonight. Yeah, good evening Mike and your listeners, what, where are we uh, broadcasting right now? You are broadcasting on uh, KOPN Columbia. We're a 40,000-watt station in Columbia, Missouri, right in the middle of the country. Wow. And, uh, yeah, we're uh, University of Missouri is here, and a big school, probably about uh, 40,000 students, mm-hmm. uh, many of which who are listening tonight, hopefully. So. Oh, great. Uh, anyway, well, look, David, uh, I, I was you were brought to my attention... Uh, a couple of months ago by uh, my webmaster, as a matter of fact, uh, who had heard uh, another interview that you you had done and was really impressed and said, hey, I think it would be great if you talked with David. He's a really interesting, intelligent guy. And since then, I've uh, read a lot of the material that you have up on the website, which we should mention one more time. Uh, it is ufonasa.terra, T-E-R-R-A-E-N-T.com. And you can get there directly from uh, the MikeHagan.com website as well. Um, and I have a website. My direct website is just DavidSarita.blogspot.com. Uh, that's right. Okay. That's uh, DavidSarita, S-E-R-E-D-A, dot blogspot.com. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. All right. Well, David, why don't we start off <clears throat> with just a little bit of uh, 
a little bit of background. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, where you came from, and how you got uh, uh, involved in the stuff that we're going to be talking about tonight, and what sort of got you on your path? Well, it's kind of ironic, you know, when you're when you're uh, growing up. I we were my whole family. We were all my brothers. Four of us were born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Mm-hmm. We moved to Berkeley in 1964. When you know, I, I was born in '61, and uh, you know, my dad's getting his PhD in, in psychology at the university. Right. right in the time of you know the, the Vietnam War. Oh man, '60s at Berkeley. Sheesh. Yeah, and I remember it all really well. I remember the tear gas, the riots, and not being able to open my eyes, huh. and uh, you know the the extra dimensional psychology that my own father was studying, and you know the, just the whole thing. It was such an amazing time, and Nixon, and then there was this. I actually think I can remember the assassination of. John F. Kennedy, and that assassination has affected me profoundly because hmm. you you have the same number. I mean, in the polls, you've got seventy percent of the American population doesn't buy the, the Kennedy assassination theory, the Oswald single bullet theory, mm-hmm. and the same number shows up in polls on UFOs. Seventy percent of Americans don't believe the government's telling them the truth about UFOs. So you get that same number, which is the majority. And there I was growing up in Berkeley, going you know, to elementary school every day, and one day I'm walking home with my friend, and, and we see this crowd of people looking up in the sky, and and there's a spaceship. Everyone's just in awe, and, you know, knocking on their neighbor's doors, telling everyone to come out onto the street. Really? And I built model airplanes as a really young kid in model cars. I mean, I knew what an airplane was, and I watched Star Trek every day with my brothers, and there's no way what I was looking at was an airplane or a blimp. I mean, I know blimps very well, even at that age. I was seven years old in 1968 when I was seeing this. Okay, so that's when it happened, 1968. Yeah, and, and you know, uh, video camera or not, when, when you know, if you look at videotape today and you think of the age of special effects, you know, everyone thinks, well, you know, how do I know this is real? But when you see it with your own eyes, it mm. changes you. It's kind of like right. it threw me off course. I mean, maybe I would have been a doctor or a lawyer like my mother, but when you see one of those things, you just... It, just changes you forever, and that's how this all started for me. You know, I was, you know, going through school, and I just couldn't stop thinking about that. I, I followed every Apollo mission. Every astronaut was a hero of mine, <laughs> from Neil Armstrong to Gordon Cooper. Right. And now Cooper, to me, actually, my my our name changed, our family name changed to Cooper when my mother remarried. You know, after some of the radical stuff happening in the '60s, affected her marriage to my father and. I was David Cooper for a while, but you know, I, and my stepfather, David Cooper, was a science teacher, so that's when I got very interested in science and physics at a very young age. But always followed space and aviation, and you know, coming back to the UFO sighting, I, it kept replaying in my mm. mind, and I wanted to figure that puzzle out if, if it took me my entire life. Wow, yeah, you know, I was I was born in '64, just a couple years behind you, and I, I have some similar memories. I mean, the, the Apollo missions were just an imprint on mm-hmm. me so strongly, and, and uh, I've always been uh, interested in, in, in things of this nature as well. So anyway, okay, so, what's, uh, so, so, so what came next? Well, what came next is I think it was in the 1970s. Uh, our family moved back to Canada temporarily because my mother divorced the second marriage, and that's when I heard in the Canadian news, they're very, you know, kind of liberated up there, as you can <laughs> see this new story with Paul Hillier. Yeah, astonishing. You know, which is astounding. A former Minister of Defense Canada is go- is demanding for public disclosure on UFOs. He's obviously convinced it's real. Right. And, 
on the news. It was the Billy Meyer story, you know, the 1970s Meyer sightings in, sure. in Switzerland. And I went, oh, my God, that's what I saw when I was a kid. And then pretty soon I knew that this UFO thing was a phenomenon. And it was much later in my life when I, you know, when I had uh, spent 20 years as a professional photographer, I started working for new, uh uh, like backtracking a little bit, I started doing a lot of ecology work. I worked as a tree planter intermittently, seasonally for 20 years. I've been, you know, crawling around mountains planting trees and oil spill cleanup. I've cleaned up a number of oil spills, you know, in the in the crews and helping out. And just my passion for the ecology has been very, very intense. And that's when I really really started to see the need and the desire to get involved in helping manifest a higher level of energy technologies mm-hmm. on our planet. Right, right, right. And I studied Tesla, Einstein, all the great physicists, and ended up working for a group called the Advanced Physics Corporation in the late 80s. I was invited by Southern California Edison, uh, the big utility down here in California, right. to bring in these physicists from MIT who knew how to make non-radioactive nuclear energy, and this was in the late 80s. They had, you know, scores of Nobel Prize winners supporting their research, and they were looking for final stage funding well, to build a prototype. Well, D- David, hold on. You know. Non-radioactive nuclear energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that most people are probably not familiar with. <laughs> well, most people are familiar with the term nuclear fusion, but that doesn't mean non-radioactive because a lot of fusion, in fact, most forms of fusion are radioactive. Right. And... The type of fusion I'm going to be speaking of, remember we had the cold fusion story with Fleshman and Pons, I think it was in the 80s, when they, mm-hmm. they announced mm-hmm. to the world they'd attained cold fusion. That's still mm-hmm. radioactive. Right. They're using heavy hydrogen, deuterium fuel. They produce uh, 30% of the energy, 3.67 million electron volts of energy per fusion using deuterium. And you've got, uh, your reaction is producing heat, and you've got to boil water with the heat and that you lose 60% of your initial energy equation when you convert thermally to electricity, and you're left with about uh, 1.2 something million electron volt charge. So sounds like a lot of energy, but helium-3 fusion, it produces 18 million electron volts of nuclear energy, Mm. and there's no conversion to heat because it converts directly to electricity. Amazing. And there's zero, uh, pretty much zero point, something, a very small percentage of neutrons, which is a form of radioactivity. Now, cold fusion is 33% neutrons, so it's still, you know, considerably radioactive, but nowhere near as radioactive as is what we're using now. Right, right, right. So that benign form, environmental form of fusion, I got behind for 10 years, and I thought it would be a slam dunk when you got a, you know, a panel of Nobel Prize winning physicists on the board. I introduced the company to multi-millionaires, uh, Southern California Edison, Solomon Brothers, Michael Jackson's, you know, the the singers group, uh, mm-hmm. the Resnicks who were on the Franklin Mint. The, the list went on and on and on, and nobody really cared about doing anything really? with alternative energy, even with all of those signatures. And I even got personally threatened by Royal Dutch Shell on the phone when I was asking them for money. They They, they didn't want me pursuing it with anybody, and they were threatening my life because it would destroy the oil business. Mm. Nine grams of helium-3, which you can hold in your hand, can produce the energy equivalent of a 1,000 barrels of oil. So you can imagine what that would do to the oil business and mm. what it would do to revolutionize technology. And at the sa- in the same stroke that you know I was, we were trying to do fundraising, 
I did a lot of communications for the company at NASA and was speaking to Earl Van Landingham, who in the late 80s, under James Fletcher, was the head of all propulsion power and energy at NASA. And they wanted this desperately. James Fletcher asked Congress for the money, and it was turned down. Really? And then finally in the end, I mean, after years and years of, of being in this, in about 93, from 87 to 93, I, I was invited to speak, you know, merely as an ecologist in, in this brilliant panel of scientists in, in mm. the House of Representatives in a debate whether the government should be funding this or not. And this was under Gore and Clinton. And Gore was invited personally by Harry Hamlin, the, the uh, actor from the, the L.A. Law Show back then, because they were friends. And, you know, Gore, being an environmentalist, I thought he would be all over this. Yeah. And he turned it down. Yeah, he's also an oil man, turns out. I know. It's like you always hear these stories about these guys, and you get you get a lot of hope for them. But they, they just, you know, Gore has said no to three things to me in person. Hmm. That uh, his um, uh, newest TV station called uh, Current TV, um, through a mutual friend, we were invited to produce a show, six-minute episodes on, you know, solutions to environmental problems, everything from solar power to electric cars uh -huh. to helium-3 fusion, and they turned us down. They, Gore didn't have, the, uh, excuse the term, he doesn't have the balls, just uh -huh. like he did when he was running for president. He's trying to please everybody, and he was criticized, oh, you can't use your station to promote your agenda, which... You know what do you think the you know the Fox Network is doing? Right, you know, right. The Republicans use the network to promote their agenda. Where else can you do it? Yeah. So he backed down and he said no. And then also an, a, the same physicist that I worked for on, in the helium three fusion project, Dr. Bogdan Castle Maglich, MIT. Yeah, yeah, Dr. Maglich. Yeah. Maglich goes on to uh, bomb detection for Department of Defense. He's mm -hmm. tired of trying to raise money for fusion. He, he's able to revolutionize airport security systems. And he, we get a small contract from the Department of Defense. He hires me. I became president of this very small research company at that time. And we developed a system that can scan a suitcase and go way beyond the capacity of an X-ray or a CAT scan. You see, an X-ray or a CAT scan will give you a picture of a suspicious, possibly suspicious-looking object, but it can't find a well-disguised explosive. Okay. For example, a terrorist can take an electric car, Fill a wet acid battery with, you know, urea or RDX, you know, C4 or ammonium nitrate, and you know the detonator is built into the circuit of the car, and the whole car has got 20 car batteries that are bombs, and an X-ray will just see that, but it doesn't know what it is. Hmm. And it's the same thing in a suitcase, in a, in, a, in an airplane, or, you know, wherever. An X-ray doesn't know; it's it's chemically blind. So right, what you right, need right. are non-intrusive scanners that can scan a target that's suspicious and get the chemical signature without opening anything up. No cotton swabbing like they do at the airport. And we did it. In 1997, Maglitch is such a brilliant physicist. He, at the Special Technologies Lab, Department of Defense Lab in Santa Barbara, we proved it, and it was verified by the DOD lab. And then I did the communications with Al Gore's head of Aviation Safety and Security Commission, Armin Sahajian, was the head of the Gore Commission, he turned me down. He wouldn't even come to a DOD lab to see the breakthrough. And this is just pre-9-11. Right. And remember, on September 11th, the terrorists said they had bombs on the planes. Hmm. And then there was Flight 587 a month later, which the eyewitnesses said they saw explode, and the cameras, the videotapes were confiscated because 
you know, they don't want us to know that they can't really find bombs with with their you know their X-ray machines. Right. Yeah, so, that was that was the one that went down in the Bronx, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. And all the eyewitnesses <clears throat> reports that though it definitely blew up. The wing didn't blow right, off, and right. that was just a, you know another big scandal. Yeah. And yeah, you think yeah, with yeah. all that, with you know Bush wanting to secure the nation with the bombings in London and Spain, that, that people would want better bomb detection equipment, and it's there. It's working right now. High energy technologies. At, you know, highenergyinc.com uh, uh, on the website, you know, they're really slow at getting orders for this new bomb detector because people just don't, you know, they just don't get it. <laughs> they don't get how vulnerable we are. We're sitting ducks right now. Uh-huh. And this same scientist could have changed our energy system, our energy, uh, you know, technology, our energy strategy could have been different. Um, you know, 15 years ago, if we'd invested in this, and now we're seeing the end of oil on the horizon, we we could be somewhere. But now, you know, we have nothing. We're 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 spending 219 billion dollars a year on foreign oil, making Saudis rich, and hmm. they're buying America <clears throat> with all their money they're making from us. You know, yeah, and yeah. so one of my goals and one of the projects I've worked on is you know sustainable, ecologically sustainable energy technologies and promoting how people. And, you know, you can either put solar panels up on your house or your office and you can recharge, you know, these beautiful electric cars that Toyota makes. And Volvo was just about to come out with this really space-age-looking electric car that gets 180 miles per charge. And, you know, you can become energy independent, yeah. and there are people doing it. Right. So yeah, that yeah. that's all kind of, you know, my perspective on technology where I've gone, you know, my struggles are mostly met with failure in, in the financial world. And UFOs have always beckoned me with the ultimate answer to everything, energy and propulsion. Yeah, so, interestingly, it goes right back to that, that, that sort of primary experience. Yeah, it all goes back to that because when you, when you see it with your own eyes, and, you, and you, for you, you know, for me, I don't have to sit there and look at videotape and try to figure out if it's real or not. I know what real sightings look like. Right. And I know how to tell fake footage. I mean, there are people who are so good, I'm sure they could fake me. But you can't fake what I saw and what everyone else saw that day. Yeah, that's the whole thing, is that there are all these people involved. and it's, yeah. th- There were so many, actually, during that time of these sort of mass sightings where lots and lots of people saw these things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there, there's some weird temporal thing that happens, too, afterwards, though, apparently. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, actually, I had a con- consistent recurring set of dreams after the UFO sighting. And I remember uh, we moved over to uh, the Oakland Hills in uh, Claremont, California, and that's where I'd have these dreams of one set of lights spinning one way clockwise and one spinning counterclockwise on the same axis. And, uh, you know, many, many years later, Barty and Cooper and Schieffer win the Nobel Prize for spinning what are known as um, Cooper pairs, Mm. where they spin electrons in one goes clockwise, one goes anti-clockwise on the same axis, and they produce superconductivity. And they win the Nobel Prize for it. So there is, there is a definite connection to my dream and, and physics there. But my physics now is is getting so evolved on propulsion that I have literally gotten the attention of top people at NASA and also the Army. And uh, you guys have a link to my advanced mm. Uh, propulsion paper on your website for people who want to read it. Right, right. There, uh, uh, what David is talking about. Uh, if you go to the website and uh, click on tonight uh, for tonight's show, you will uh, see a real cool image. And then down toward the bottom of the text, um, 
which is uh, a part of David's bio, you'll see special link to download David Street's UFO propulsion paper, and it's a PDF, and it's 57 or 58 pages long, and I didn't read the whole thing. I read enough to realize that I shouldn't read any further. <laughs> but uh, it certainly uh, appears that there, and and it's uh, it's not the first time. Uh, that I'm seeing this sort of thing, David. I mean, there is a lot going on, and there are uh, sort of simultaneous discoveries going on by uh, many different people, I think, in lots of different fields, but they're all sort of pointing uh, uh, sort of in the same direction. Yeah, I mean, when you have astronauts like Edgar Mitchell, I lectured at oh. Roswell, you know, where the, mm. the, the famous uh, Roswell UFO incident occurred, and there's Edgar Mitchell who walked on the moon, and he's lecturing about UFOs. Right, right. And then you find Gordon Cooper, who, you know, I have a new film coming out in um, in uh, in the spring called Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs, and it's just this amazing conversation between Aykroyd and myself with just a wealth of B-roll going by of UFO sightings and other illustrative imagery. And we licensed an interview, one of the last interviews from James Fox of Gordon Cooper, mm-hmm. testifying to chasing UFOs post-World War II in Germany, and then seeing one land at Edwards Air Force Base and also commenting on the Roswell incident. I mean, there's Cooper who, after, you know, Gemini and Apollo and uh, being an Air Force pilot, he gets hired by the Disney Corporation to do the same right. thing I was doing, right. to research alternative energy technologies. Mm-hmm. And then when he finds ones that he thinks are interesting, zero-point energy being you know more advanced than nuclear fusion, um, he can't get any money for them. Right. They just simply want to know what's going on out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, yeah. it's really incredible how many, you know, key witnesses and very credible witnesses are testifying to this stuff. And then the mainstream media tends to laugh at it, not take it seriously. We don't take it seriously in our universities. And then you read that in China and Russia, they're studying this stuff in their universities because. The next person, the next country that figures out true mm. UFO, anti-gravity technology, and beyond light speed travel, or even one-tenth the speed of light travel, <laughs> is going to be king of aerospace on this planet, and we could stand to lose our superior position in a bad way. I mean, imagine if communist China figures out how to go, you know, I mean, we have jets that can do maybe Mach 3, you know, 2,000-something miles an hour, uh, 1,800 miles an hour, and... You consider a tenth the speed of light is 67 million miles per hour. <laughs> right. And that's actually possible with, with um, in fact, Earl Van Landingham at NASA told me that a helium-3 fusion drive, 18 MeV protons, what are called anti-proton propulsion systems, which are ion propulsion mm-hmm. systems, which right. are nuclear, right. he said they were developing them and testing them at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and they were very interested in helium-3, but the problem is there was no money. And it, he said... Helium-3 could produce a tenth the speed of light. And they knew that back in the in the 70s. Absolutely and there's just amazing. no money going into this. Yeah, it's so a, it's, it's if, just you, if we're amazing. asleep at the wheel, we think, you know, like the Roman Empire, that we've conquered the world, and the Turkish Ottoman Empire, and Alexander the Great, all great empires fell when they felt too confident. They felt, mm. okay, we've done it. We can rest now. But China's not resting. I mean, their population is, is bursting at the seams. And there's no way they would win a war against us right now. We would both probably lose. But if you have this kind of technology, um, someone could use that. And think about China. Think about China, how they 
in the late 50s invaded Tibet, and they've massacred you know nearly two million Tibetans because of very specific reasons. My aunt Patsy Cooper actually had meetings with the Dalai Lama, and I met him in India in 1996, and she said one of the main reasons. China invaded Tibet was because it has the best uranium in the world for building nuclear weapons, and even further, it's the best strategic location for nuclear missile silos. So the Dalai Lama, uh, his, his personal secretary, gave me a meeting with the head of Tibetan Chinese medicine and astrology who gave me these maps of what the Tibetans had marked as nuclear bases all over the Himalayas. Right. And when I showed them to the nuclear physicist, Dr. Magwish, that I worked for, he said, there's way too many of these things to be nuclear power plants. These have got to be missile silos. Mm. So I gave them uh, in the, I think this was the, the mid-90s, to Chris Harmel, the Pentagon's head of China war games expert. And he said, oh, my God. He said, we can't see these things on our satellites because of all the rocks, outcroppings in the Himalayas. You can't see this. Right, right, right. So they wanted to double check on them. So China is very active. I mean, they have they have missile silos over the Himalayas. They invaded Tibet, and you know this is the most recent genocide oh, in the yeah. history of our world. And and what will happen if they figure this thing out? And that's one of the things I like to prompt and beckon our military with is you know we got to take this seriously. There's too many people who are seeing you know these UFOs. And that's why, personally, I focus so intensely on propulsion. Hmm. And there I am lecturing in Washington, D.C., to 500 people, you know, Denver, Colorado, um, at the MUFON conference. And I get approached by, you know, top people in, in, in the Air Force who are interested in my propulsion work. But what I keep hearing is, be patient. There's no money under the Bush administration for exotic propulsion at NASA or the Air Force. And you're just going to have to wait. So. Absolutely astonishing, and I, but but apparently it's par for the course. Well, it's you know it's you, you know look back. I mean, Nikola Tesla comes to America from Yugoslavia, gets hired by Thomas Edison, mm-hmm. and J.P. Morgan finances him, and that's why Tesla becomes so prolific because he gets so much money thrown at him that he can actually you know do this stuff. Right. I analyze UFO footage from the space shuttle from you know, crop circles and good videotape, and I can see very clearly in the tapes wave formations and that are strobing around the craft. And I slow those waves down, I add contrast filters, and I can read those waves. And if you know the language of quantum physics, which is just particles and waves, mm-hmm. you can translate that. You can translate those spiral patterns in the fields and the crop circles, and you can understand what they're saying. And that's how I figured this out, how I was able to revolutionize a whole new approach to approaching the speed of light and going way beyond it for, wow. for aerospace propulsion. All right. Well, look, that's a good place to take a break, I think, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's do that. We'll, uh, we'll take a break, and we will come back in about five minutes, and we'll talk more about this, David. We'll talk about uh, the breakthrough that you had. Mm-hmm. We can talk about this propulsion paper because they're related, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, the galaxy clock is something that we can talk about. Uh, we'll see. We've got plenty of time still. Yeah. And uh, But let's come back and talk more about propulsion and about alternative energy because that is sort of... Uh, I agree with you. I mean, that's the that, that's the grail right now. It's I mean, the if, holy grail. Yeah, yeah. And and it's and it's probably not near as far away as most people think because mm-hmm. uh, you and I both know, and many other people out there know that there have been 
uh, a number of occurrences in the past where, where, where solutions have been available but just haven't been implemented, as you're making really clear tonight. So, All right, ma'am, okay, we'll be back in just a minute, okay? Yep. Okay, hang on, everybody. This is Mike, and uh, you're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is David Sarita, and we're talking about... Uh, uh, among other things, UFOs and propulsion technologies, but we'll uh, touch on a number, of, uh, a number of different things as we continue the conversation tonight. So stick around. We'll be back in just a few minutes. We've got more music here from Mike Kane, local independent music from Columbia, Missouri, and you're listening to it right here on Radio Orbit. This one is called Kitty Hawk.
All right, here we are. This is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And uh, my guest tonight is David Sarita. And we've been talking for the last half hour about, oh, a little bit about David's background and uh, now just getting into some information about uh, UFOs and propulsion technologies and alternative energy in general, uh, sort of, we're talking about. You can uh, join us on the web at www.mikehagen.com. And uh, right from the front page there, you can jump over to a couple of different things. Uh, David's website uh, at uh, ufonasa.terra-ent.com. And uh, we have a link also to a PDF of a uh, a position paper, a propulsion paper uh, that David has written. And then also uh, there's one other website that we should mention that I don't think we actually have a live link up for. And that's David Sarita. S-E-R-E-D-A dot blogspot dot com. All right, so uh, David, we've been uh, talking a little bit about alternative energy and propulsion technologies. Why don't we continue with that? Because it's sort of the uh, uh, the um, the big sixty-four thousand dollar question of the day. We have a lot of uh, a lot of our problems seem to be sort of raising their head at the same time, and uh, energy, a solution to the energy issue, would solve a whole lot of problems all at once. Definitely. I mean, there there is no shortage of brilliance in America. I mean, this is the country where you know the automobile, the airplane, the computer, uh, you know, remote control, solar power, neon lighting, fluorescent lighting, the motion picture, Thomas Edison. I mean, Nikola Tesla. I mean, Einstein. All of them come here mm-hmm. because this is where the the spirit of America is. When someone has an invention. Um, we get behind it, you know, right. because we right. know it can transform life for everybody on the planet. But things got really stagnant in the energy area. I mean, we were we're getting you know, nicer and nicer computer systems, you know, more and more beautiful automobiles. But the energy that drives everything, we're not really focusing on transforming. We, we're kind of lazy in that department. Right. It's been the superficial stuff up on top, but underneath what drives everything is still... Underneath, we're just producing global warming. You know, we've got a world, we've got a record a hurricane season, <laughs> the, the greatest number on record, and of course everybody knows that just in the past year, I mean, just from the tsunamis to huh. the earthquakes to the tornadoes to the, 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 you know, the hurricanes, I mean, the earth is really... Oh, man in the past year since last December. Yeah, think about it. That tsunami was just about uh, just about a year ago, actually. It just happened about a year at, ago, at the yeah, end of December. Getting, we're getting close to a year, so you think and that... Look at, yeah, David, look at what's happened in the last year. My gosh, since then. Holy it's cow. It's amazing what's happening with our planet. And I think it's a, it's a sense... I mean, the ecosystem is a living organism. Mm. It's like when you have a disease in your body, your body produces an autoimmune response and mm. attacks the virus. Now, if we choose to be the virus you know, and destroy the coral reefs and, you know, polar bears are about to go extinct due to global warming. The BBC ran a story recently I saw in the news where, you know, in northern Canada and Inuvit, Mm. you know, the ice hadn't even formed yet up there for the fishermen to fish on the ice, let alone the polar bears. You know, this planet is in serious shape, and if you start to mess with it, I mean, look what happens to the human body when you increase the temperature by from, you know, 98.6 to 100 degrees. you got a fever. Right. And the planet is already that much hotter. It's, it's a few degrees hotter. That means it's sick. It's not in good shape. So what do we do when we're sick? We start throwing up and mm. doing all sorts of crazy things until we get rid of the virus. Right. And but that's it, what I think is going on. Yeah, and I mean, those, those metaphors are really actually 
uh, fair, I think. In other words, uh, I think of like a shiver, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and that's, you know, the representation of an earthquake, perhaps, you know, and this sort of thing. So. I mean, not everybody's an ecologist and is that sensitive, but even if you're, you know, you're a hunter and you're, you know, you'd like your big truck, do you really want to have, you know, uh, forests burning down from global warming, the western pine beetle wiping out your forest mm-hmm. so you can't even go out and go fishing anymore? And, you know, the mosquito, the frogs are so mutated out there now they got, you know, six eyeballs and mm-hmm. five legs. And they can't catch the mosquitoes, so the mosquitoes go rampant, and they start spreading viruses. I mean, it's so sensitive. It's so fragile. Mm. And do you really want to see the end of the polar bear? <laughs> I mean, is it, do we really want that, even if you're not an ecologist? I mean, this is what we're actually doing to the planet. So to me, it's like an intensive to focus on UFOs, to focus on alternative energy technologies. We have to be doing this intensively. And Kerry did not present a good energy strategy when he was running for president, and I, I don't, I don't believe Bush has a strong enough energy strategy. Arnold Schwarzenegger here in California, I've attended personal meetings for his hydrogen highway and his million solar roof initiative, and he's the only person who is focusing intensely on transforming the state of California to prepare it for hydrogen. Hmm. You know, a zero emission fuel that's made from water. You just need to put more solar and more wind farms up, and you can produce all the electricity you need to to be powering our, our our nation and get off foreign oil. Mm-hmm. I mean, that should become a national energy strategy. But, you know, beyond that, you think that Kennedy started, you know, the initiative to go to the moon, and we went to the moon successfully, and now it's kind of like we've gone backwards. We, we're not, you know, we're not aggressively pursuing the frontiers of space. With the advent of the Hubble Space Telescope, our universe keeps getting bigger and our position in it's smaller. It's kind of like being a little kid and you're stuck in your room and you, you, you look mm. out the window and you want to go play, but you right, can't. Right, right. That to me, that's what it's like for me because I love space and I love aviation. I'm a skydiver and I've got over 200 skydives. I've jumped at night. I want to get out there. Mm. What's in our universe? I used to watch Star Trek and think, you know, we're going to be able to do this in my lifetime. And oh, here we man. are. We can't get off this little ball. David, we are kindred spirits. I've had the same feelings my whole life, and I and and the whole moon thing has completely baffled me because yeah. I was like, you know, we we went to the moon, uh, you know, in 1969. So we're going we're going on 35 years, right? 30, yeah. 36 years, and then uh, for uh, you know the strangest things happen. We get these announcements that come out of NASA, like like they're going to go back to the moon in 18 years or yeah. something like that. And and I'm thinking. What are you talking about, you know? Yeah. You want to go back to the moon in 2015 or something like that. What the hell are you talking about? The irony is moon dust is where there's more helium-3 than anywhere we know of. One cargo bay in the space shuttle full of moon dust could, according to Pacific Gas and Electrics, their supervising mechanical engineer, Quentin Ashworth, told me, and this was again in the late 80s, that that much moon dust in the cargo bay of the shuttle could meet the entire energy demands of the United States for a whole year. And this would be using that technology that we using spoke about earlier. Using helium-3 fusion. Now, you have to have attain successful helium-3 fusion model, but right, Magwitch right. was pretty much there. I mean, at the Air Force, at Kerwin Air Force Base in New Mexico, the Pentagon did a $3 million study on Super Cray 2 computers to simulate his reactor, and they found no reason for failure. They wrote in their report that... They thought we should go ahead and fund this thing. Hmm. That's what simulation studies are for in Super Cray 2. And everyone right. said no. You know, Gore said no. 
Clinton said no. Um, no, nobody wants to do this. Right. So well, Magwish isn't doing that anymore. He's doing the bomb detection. So for mm-hmm. me, you know, when you look at let's, let's look at propulsion because I'm going to divide propulsion into three different categories. The first category is where we are now with our most exotic ideas. And I, what I'm going to show you, and this is what I do in my lectures, is how impossible it is to attain anywhere near the speed of light using rocket engines oh, gosh, or yeah. even ion propulsion drives Okay, All right. because of the ridiculous amounts of energy it takes. Mm. So the only fuels that can get you know, in thruster engines, a spacecraft even to one-tenth the speed of light are nuclear fuels. Right. What Essentially what happens is the greater the energy charge on the propellant mass, let's start with rocket fuel, the more explosive rocket fuel is, the faster its propellant mass fires out of the back of the rocket drive. Mm-hmm. And as that propellant mass pushes out of the drive, it creates a propulsion or force that sends the spacecraft in the opposite direction. Okay. Well, the space shuttle does about 18,000 miles an hour. The Apollo missions to the moon were, were much slower than that. They right. were in a several thousand mile an hour range. And, of course, our jets can do maybe Mach 3, Mach 4, you know, at, at best. We have some rockets they can they can do like the x-45 i think it can do like mach 10 or mach 12 10 or 12 right 10 right, or 12 right. which is amazingly fast for for humans but really it's not that fast right so and the speed of the tenth of speed of light is 67 million miles per hour which is so far in advance of that and that according to earl van landingham at nasa if we developed ion nuclear propulsion drives now ion drives work similar to rocket fuel but because there's so there's such high charges of energy on the propellant mass ions, the faster they go out the back of the drive, the faster the ship goes in the opposite direction. Well, 18 MeV million electron volt charges on protons using anti-proton drives can produce one tenth the speed of light. But now here's the problem: let's say you could build a helium three fusion drive successfully, and NASA could get velocities that high. Once you're going that fast, what starts to happen is the inertia, the pressures on the rocket ship are so great, mm. and the G-forces become greater and greater at higher velocities if you decide to turn, even if you turn a little bit to avoid an oncoming asteroid. Like, you know, think about watching Star Wars, mm-hmm. and I'll show you how ridiculous George Lucas's spaceships are, <laughs> even though they're a lot of fun, but they, they're just violating all the laws in physics. And so you decide you want to turn, and you're doing a tenth of speed of light. What do you think is going to happen, even at a... At a you know one degree oh, away yeah. from you know your straight angle turn, it, the g forces are going to destroy you. Right, it just rips the thing apart. Yeah, and before you know it, you're going to hit something. Mm. So that whole approach doesn't work. Now, to if you could build an ion thruster drive uh, and produce the kind of energies you need to get to 99.99 percent the speed of light, Einstein's law says that due to the increased mass law, the faster you right, go. Right, right the more inertia pushes on you, which increases your weight charge in relation to that inertia, mm-hmm. it's, it, you eventually, your mass becomes so great, it becomes infinite to the point that the, it's like, imagine a boat moving through a lake, and the water, the mass of the water impedes on the boat, and the faster you go, the boat gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and pretty soon, if you have a strong enough propulsion drive on the boat, the, the propulsion drive is going to destroy the boat because the, the water's mass is going to impede on it and literally right. annihilate it. Right. And then, let's say you're moving through air mass in a jet, you can go much faster than a boat, but the air it's mass pushes, pushes on you and then, of course, increases your mass 
It takes more and more energy to go faster and faster. And when you go through space, it's not a void. It looks right. like a void, but it has mass. Right. The background of space is loaded with mass, mm. and that was proven by both Max Planck and Einstein. And that mass impedes on you, and it, it, your limit is, is, is literally the speed of light. But mm. mass cannot actually attain the speed of light, and it, it can only do 99.99%. Now, how much energy, guess how much energy it takes in an ion drive to go 99% the speed of light? Mm. You need one trillion electron volt charges on your fuel, on your ion, ions, to get up to that velocity. All right. There are no nuclear fuels on the planet, including plutonium, that can produce one TeV. Right. It right. just can't be done. You know, nuclear, uh, when we blew up the nuclear bombs in Nevada in the test, we were producing 200 MeV, 200 million electron volt charges, which will get you really fast if you could build a drive and utilize a force like that. But again, the G-forces will kill you if you try to turn. So mass seems to be the big problem here. Mass is the big problem. Now to go to wormholes, which is the next exotic theory on the table. Wormholes are even more ridiculous. They don't, you know, you see these things in, in fancy movies, right. you know, Star Trek. But a wormhole big enough to fit a quarter through, according to Kip Thorne at Caltech, who wrote Black Holes and Time Warps, requires the negative energy of 100 million suns. They're total... total solar output for an entire year. There are 100 million suns in our galaxy. But that's all of the, the negative energy they produce for a whole year to make one wormhole big enough to fit a quarter through, <laughs> which is where the wormholes are like the Einstein-Rosenbridge formula that folds two different locations in space together. Mm -hmm. It makes a shortcut so that you can, you know, obviate the, the long journey through space-time. So, again, those energy levels are unattainable and they're ridiculous. The wormholes are feasible another way, but the current model doesn't work at all. There's no way any civilization is doing it this way. And the effects of, you know, folding two points of space-time together on the, the locale of the universe, I think, would be devastating if that were actually happening. So what are you left with? I mean, you look at these approaches and you see these UFOs and you wonder, like, what are you guys doing? What do you know that we don't know? Hmm. And, you know, increasing energy on mass is like trying to bash your head through a brick wall. So what I did is I just started studying, uh, firstly, very simply, you know, all the different particles we know of and what is the only particle that can attain the speed of light. And, of course, that's light itself. Hmm. And what is the difference between light and mass? Well, light mass is, you know... When, when you get right down to the quantum model, the atom and smaller, everything is just particles and waves. Right. And you start studying particles and waves, and you start to get closer and closer to the answer to how to do it. You have to transform mass. Mass in its current state can definitely not go the speed of light because of inertia and the increased mass law. But if you can, initially I came up with the idea, if you can wave transform mass using wave generators and reduce the mass gravity effect of a spaceship and a pilot down to zero. Hmm. Once your craft attains zero mass, then you can do the speed of light on almost no energy. Because in an Einstein formula, and this is simple, energy E is hmm. equal to mass times the speed of light squared. If hmm. your mass is zero, right. the energy required to go the speed of light squared is zero. Hmm. It's not about energy anymore when you can transform mass. Now, where do you find proof of that? I mean, how do you? How is this possible? And that was a, a very lengthy journey for me to, in, in quantum physics, looking for models on how the 
the state of mass as we know it is not constant. And this is my own work, and it's now supported. I found evidence from a, a few Nobel Prize winning physicists, but it was very overlooked work of theirs, and it's very precise, and it's in my paper. There is actual proof on a quantum level by Paul Dirac, who won the Nobel Prize with Schrodinger mm-hmm. for his studies on wave physics, that single, uh, single pairs of electrons, anti-electrons, are able to reduce their mass down to zero and attain zero mass, which means they literally turn into light. And that, if you can do that to a whole spaceship and a pilot, there's no g-forces if you turn right at, you know, 2.2 million miles an hour because right. if there's no mass, there's no g-forces. Right, right. And right. you can pass through solid objects. You can you can pass through the cause of inertia, which is resistance, huh. which is what causes the increased mass loss. So, when I when I did my film, evidence the case for NASA UFOs, which is which is when it first came out, Lockheed Martin was one of the first people to buy several copies of the film. And I thought that was interesting. Absolutely. What are these guys doing buying this thing? And I was, you know, I just quickly learned on the space shuttle that NASA had special video cameras that could see into the invisible ultraviolet and infrared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's there that the wave formations show up really clearly on the video cameras around the UFOs. And then when I slowed those waves down, I looked at them and I go, I, I know what you guys are doing. I can see the waves. I can see them clearly. You guys are reducing the mass gravity effect because the only time you see these wave formations is when an atom is giving off its energy and giving up its mass. Mm-hmm. This was Niels Bohr who mm-hmm. did these basic studies on the hydrogen atom. That when an electron spins into a higher frequency orbit or a shorter radial distance, it gives off a tiny amount of its energy, energy, which is its mass, Hmm. which means it goes to a lower mass state, but then quickly the electron jumps further away from the nucleus and it gains it back again. But that little deviation proves to you that mass is not constant, Hmm. that it can be altered. But it was, it was, it was, um, Niels, not Niels Bohr, it was, uh, uh, I just mentioned his name. Paul Dirac, yeah, Dirac. found he stripped electron pairs off of the proton. And instead of being held in the orbital distance, the radial distance around the proton, like, a, like you know, Earth is spinning around the sun, it's like if you throw the sun away, what happens to the planets? They're going to start spiraling into a smaller and smaller orbit until they can find something to gravitate around. Or they, so what happens to the, the electron-anti-electron pairs is they start spinning into super high-frequency orbits and they disappeared out of the bubble chambers. They don't know where they went. Huh. And he calculates the moment they went invisible was the moment they gave up their mass energy right. to zero. Right, right, right. And most physicists thought they had that the electron-anti-electron annihilated, but Dirac argued, how could they have annihilated? There would have been an explosion in the bubble chamber, and there wasn't anything. And then he said, when, he, when you really look at you know what are known as sub-Planck lengths, which is the smallest mm-hmm. diameter of a wave ever measured, he said they didn't come anywhere near each other. They just went ultra-high frequency. And then when they did that, they gave up their mass. And if you follow Niels Bohr's simple model, of course that's what they're going to do. They're going higher frequency. They're going to give up their energy. But they still exist. But you can't see them because they don't have mass anymore. And that's where the in- invisible spectra cameras come in really handy, like they have on the space shuttle. Now, when I looked at the wave formations on the, the UFOs on the NASA tapes, they were doing the same thing. All right, all right, hold, wave hold. formations go from a wider diameter ring to a smaller ring, and then you'll see this spiraling wave that spirals in towards this black hole in the center. 
And the black hole in the center is the point where the, for, the wave formation goes so high frequency that it just disappears. All right, David. There's no mass anymore. Hold on a second here, okay? Okay. Let's, um, let's go back and talk a little bit about NASA because I know that, and I, and I want to make sure that we're clear on this, uh, you, you conducted a pretty deep investigation into the community there at NASA. Yeah. And, and, uh, both in and outside of the agency, I know. And, and let's, let's talk, let's explain a little bit about this footage and clarify what we're talking about, uh, for, for the people who aren't familiar. I've seen some of this stuff myself years ago, long before I ran into you, that, that, the, the tether, uh, experiment, uh, blew my mind years ago, you know, and then, um, some of these other, anomalous videos that have come from the from the shuttle uh, missions but at any rate maybe you could explain a little bit more about your investigation into NASA why you really wanted to do it um, and then uh, then yeah. we'll bring these videos into it and then maybe at the top of the hour we'll come back and we can talk at, at length about the uh, the footage itself yeah so where should we start exactly here I mean well let's just talk about uh, uh, about NASA and why you wanted to start looking into them to begin with well one of the reasons I wanted to look into them is firstly that you know if you could prove that there are UFOs on NASA tapes you know no one could say it's fabricated footage mm. <laughs> because it's their footage which means it's our footage it belongs to us that's right we paid for it sure it's paid for and you know I quickly learned from NASA's top physicists that they had cameras that were retrofitted with you know very advanced CCDs and, and imaging systems that allowed what appeared to be ordinary video cameras to see into the near ultraviolet and other cameras were equipped with infrared sensors and some had very advanced special filters. And you, and you know a lot about photography because that's yeah, part of I've your background as well. Yeah, I've been photography for 20 years right. off and on, so I know how cameras work really well. Okay. And the first thing that, that, that you see is, I mean, you know, let's go to the Tether incident, which is FTS-75 space shuttle mission, and it's 1996. And NASA is conducting this experiment with this, you know, 12 mile long tether, which is a very thin conductor cable connecting the shuttle Columbia to this satellite. And they're dragging the tether through the Earth's ionosphere, picking up supercharged particles in the Earth's electrostatic, you know, uh, atmosphere to see if they can actually, you know, gain some of that energy and use it, you know, for the, the ultimate goal was to get a free energy source for the space station. Right. They could use the, the electrons that flow through the tether and power experiments on the space station and even power some of its, you know, some of its thruster systems to keep the space station in orbit and save on fuel costs. But what happens is the tether is overloaded with, there's way more energy in the ionosphere than they thought. It shorts out, it breaks, it drifts, um, you know, way away from the shuttle Columbia, and three or four days later, they're making another pass because the shuttle's passing around the Earth several times a day. Mm -hmm. You know, the Earth is 24,000 miles circumference, roughly, and the shuttle's doing 18,000 miles an hour. So you can figure how many passes they make in a day around the Earth. Right. Far more than we do. But when they were making one of their orbital passes by the tether, they have the, the ultraviolet cameras pointed at it, and, you know, it's, it's 77 to 100 miles away in the shot, the, the tether appears very thick because, according to the NASA report, the camera's uh, sensitivity to low levels of light allows it to see sunlight bouncing off the magnetic field around the tether. Hmm. The magnetic field is at least a half a mile to three-quarters of a mile wide. It's a very you know, fat you know, line, and you're seeing this 12-mile-long line out in space glowing like a neon tube. Right, right, right. And then when the camera zoom in, you can see these big discs that are pulsing with these wave formations passing behind it. 
and the key word is behind, and it's very clear that they're going behind. And when you zoom in, you can see there are translucent disks of light with very dark centers and these, you know, pulsing waves moving through them. And, of course, NASA said it was just debris and dust that was near the camera lens, and the camera got out of, you know, they get out of focus as they get near the camera, and that produces this kind of airy disk or glow around them. And, and that's how they kind of wrote it off. But once you understand how a, a three-CCD digital video camera works, that, you know, you can – I've ever watched a football game and you see the, the droplets of water on the lens mm, and you see sure. the football players. The depth of field on these video cameras is so good that once the camera's in focus, everything's in focus. Mm. You don't get out-of-focus orbs on good CCD cameras, yeah, yeah. and that's what NASA uses. So we confirm from the audio tape that the camera's in focus. The operator says, I can't do any better than that. That means it's in focus, so everything is in focus. There is no such thing as out-of-focus orb. With a 35-millimeter lens uh, you know, or 50-millimeter lens and you're shooting film, um, things that get near the camera get so out of focus you can't even see them, period, because the depth of field is so bad. And they're not using those. They're using CCD video cameras. So, you know, I got in this huge argument with people at NASA about this, and I basically proved them wrong. And then they started saying, well, no, the camera doesn't have a CCD, you know, and because they know they lost the debate. <laughs> this was James Oberg at NASA. And then he, he changes his position on his next debate. And then I can prove you wrong on that one, too, because if it doesn't have a CCD, then, you know, look what happens with a 35-millimeter camera. Take an old 35-millimeter camera and hold a paper clip in front of the lens about a foot away and focus on infinity, you know, 25 feet and beyond. You won't see the paper clip. It doesn't exist. Right. So that's not what's going on here. And then we find that, you know, because we have a 12-mile-long measuring rod and the UFOs are going behind it, um, we can measure their diameters, their minimum diameters. If they're right up next to the back of it, they're one to two miles wide. The further the way they get, the larger they actually are. Hmm. And, you know, these are motherships. And they're exactly what we would expect. They're zero-mass gravity effect craft. When, when UFOs reduce their mass, they become translucent light craft. And there are, there's incredible video footage people will see in my film, uh, Dan Aykroyd Unplugged on UFOs. You're going to see light ships. You know, hovering right over our cities, down low. You're going to see, um, you know, UFOs in Mexico that will, will blow your mind. UFOs in, in, in Phoenix, Arizona that will blow your mind. And they'll go metallic and then they'll turn into white and you'll see this very clearly. I've been able to look at videotapes so good of UFOs that I can see the, the translucent shape of the disk and I can see what's in the core of the wave generator. I've got new evidence that is showing me very precise patterns in the wave generator itself that is telling me how you know how to configure my own wave generator. I think I've got this stuff figured out now. I know how to actually engineer it. It's not just theoretical anymore. All right. Well, look, uh, David, hang in there. We are at the top of the hour, so let's uh, let's take a break and we'll come back and talk more about this. I'm glad we did that. I wanted to get the NASA thing cleared up uh, so people understood how. Uh, w w what this footage was actually was actually about because it is astonishing and I think that the uh, the point you make earlier about it being real and ours and 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 knowing that nobody can can debunk the footage because it comes directly from uh, from NASA is was brilliant uh, a brilliant place to start so and I'll show you some more evidence when we come back about what we're actually looking at in the shuttle because there's other people who have captured the same translucent disk with the dark centers. 
Yeah, and maybe we could talk about, uh, well, well, we'll see if we can get into the Dropa Stones and this sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, the Dropa Stone connection. Yeah, because yeah, there's definitely a historical precedent for some of this oh, stuff. Yeah. So, All right, sounds good, Dave. We'll be back in just a minute, okay? Mm-hmm. All right, everybody, uh, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. My guest is David Sarita. We're discussing uh, UFOs and propulsion technologies, alternative energy, ecology, and uh, we've got another hour with David, so stick around. It uh, uh, promises to get more and more interesting as it already is so okay let's play a little bit of music here we will play let's play another song by mike kane this one is called note to self and that's a good topic here tonight so uh this is mike you listen to radio orbit and we'll be back in just a few minutes with david sarita one more time mike kane note to self radio orbit back in a few
back out into a haze of apathy. Jay Widener, and you're listening to the Alchemical Airwaves of Radio Orbit on KOPN, Columbia, 89.5 FM. All right, this is Mike, and you are listening to Radio Orbit, and it's about seven minutes after 1 a.m. on uh, Tuesday morning, now December 6th. Uh, a big thank you to my guest, David Sarita, for staying up into the late night hours with us tonight. He's out there in California, and uh, what is it, David, now about 11 out there? Yeah, 11 o'clock. I'm, I'm usually a late night guy. I do a lot of my film editing at nighttime these days. Yeah, you know, there's something about uh, something about the night hours that I've always enjoyed, too, yeah. and there's a lot of night owls uh, like us that are out and about right now. So. Yeah, it's a quiet time. Yeah, good time to get work done and a good time to let your mind uh, think about things that uh, are usually occupied by other things during the day, you know. So. Exactly. All right, man. Well, look, um, let's uh, let's continue along here. We're, we, we've been talking about this NASA footage and uh, sort of what it belies. And let's just continue with that and, and uh, your investigation and where it has led you and uh, uh, what it looks like you may have some answers for this, or at least you think you do. And I'm... Uh, certainly uh, hoping that you're right, so let's continue. Well, actually, what happens next is, I mean, the, the arguments at NASA get so intense against the idea that these translucent disks with the dark centers are actually UFOs. And But then what happens is, you know, I released the film Evidence the Case in NASA UFOs in, in 2000 and, uh, I think it was 2001, in the beginning of 2002, we actually released it. My, my You know, the book also which has every letter and every conversation I had with anyone at NASA. You know, people can get that uh, also through ufonasa.com. Yeah, let's, but, let's do that actually really fast. Let's, yeah. t- let's mention uh, with a little bit more detail the book and the video. Um, uh, you can give the names out, and then we'll give the website again, and you can get there from my website as well. But And, and also maybe you can give us a quick... Uh, uh, a comment about Dan Aykroyd. You've mentioned his name a couple of times, and and I, and I know you have a relationship with him, but I'm sure some people are curious. So, yeah, I mean that's uh, the Aykroyd film is you know Dan and I. Dan has been very interested in in my NASA film, and that's kind of how we met because he keeps his eyes on everything going on in the UFO world. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know he did the cameo intro to that film, Evidence the Case for NASA UFOs, and wrote the forward to my book. And, you know, him and I would have these amazing conversations over dinner about UFOs. And he, 
you know, one day I just said, you know, I just people have got to know this about you, Dan. They got to know what you really think about UFOs and how much Dan knows. I mean, he's like, mm. it's like Einstein crammed into a comedian's body. I mean, the guy is brilliant. Really. And he knows virtually everything going on in the UFO world. So we made this film, and, and it's a very low-budget but simple film and incredible B-roll footage. It played at the Cannes Film Festival, and it's coming out by Arclight Films in the spring. Right. So keep your eyes out for it. Okay. And, you know, evidence the case for NASA UFOs, what happens is it comes out, and then I get this call from a friend of mine who says that there is a pioneer of invisible photography from World War II, New Zealand. He was a radio operator during the war. Trevor James Constable is his name, and he's a famous aviation author. He wrote a lot of books on, you know, war planes, and, and I think he wrote the book on Von Himmel, the famous German yeah, yeah. Air Force pilot. Right, right, right. But what happens is Constable notices during the war that there's all these cases where we can see these blips on radar, and we launch our fighters up to go meet them, and there's nothing there. Mm. One case off of Okinawa in Japan, uh, Major Donald Kehoe reported this, that we thought we saw a either a huge mothership signal, which we thought was a fleet of possibly 300 enemy aircraft, and they were doing over 700 miles an hour in World War II, which is, you know, breaking yeah. the sound barrier. Right. And we hadn't done that yet. We didn't break the sound. Chuck Yeager didn't break the sound barrier until uh, you know mid 1940s. Mm-hmm. So here we are in World War II. Somebody's faster than us. We go up, clear day, uh, signal strong, not, nothing there, and that kept happening. So constables started you know becoming fascinated with invisible photography and used 35 millimeter cameras with high speed infrared film. If you don't use the red filter, you get near ultraviolet sensitivity. And he was taking pictures in specific areas, one in Landers, California, where a guy named George Van Tassel hmm. claimed to be channeling extraterrestrials, hmm. which is pretty out there stuff. Yeah, I remember the story, though. Yeah, and as he's taking these photos, you know, there's no UFOs present to the visible eye, but clearly on the film you get the same translucent discs of light with the dark centers and other shots that just look like motherships that are really close range exactly what we're seeing on the NASA tapes. I mean, the same thing. Huh. But you're using 35-millimeter camera. There's no way you're getting the kind of phenomena that, that some of the people at NASA are arguing. And so those photos are actually posted at davidsarita.blogspot.com. You can actually see Trevor's co- photos. And now, with the advent again of the home little digital stealth camera, people are taking pictures on vacation of, you know, sunsets and various things. When they come home, they download their pictures, and there's a UFO in the shot. And it's clear. It's metallic. I mean, yeah, you can see yeah, these things. Yeah. And you'll see there's there's actually some that are light disc-shaped craft. It's very similar to the NASA ones also on my website. And I, I wasn't able to put those in my new film. So the evidence just started piling in. And then I was reading Preston Dennett's book, UFOs Over California. And there it is, Project Blue Book, You know, the, the, the legendary Project Blue Book. Right. There are two cases in his book. Um, I'll read one very short right here on page 23. It says, two hours, two hours later, numerous personnel on the Air Force base observed two objects making a low, slow pass over the base. They were described as having a silver metal color with a dark spot in the center, and at certain angles to the sun gave off a bright glare, identical to you know the dark spot in the center and metallic, shiny. And the dark spot in the center is part of the energy field. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you, what's the, what's the story with this dark center? Well, the dark center is where the field starts, the frequency wavelengths get so high, it, essentially it just the mass goes invisible. Mm. Ultimately, when the craft is really high frequency, you can't see anything. It's just gone. And then page 36 of the same book, different report, Project Blue Book, many accounts of UFOs being chased by planes have been recorded in UFO history. Much more rare are reports of planes being chased by UFOs. <laughs> On September 27th at around 4 p.m., a round object with a dark center was seen by Glendale, California residents chasing two jet planes. So, you know, when you see reports like this, and and MUFON has, you know, MUFON.com, who is the largest organization for UFOs, and they were my consulting body for my Ackroyd film, they have many reports of the same descriptions, eyewitness reports of light craft with the dark center. So... When you see that and you see Trevor James Constable's photos, you pretty much know that, you know, this is what these ships do. They turn, they convert their mass, they reduce the mass gravity effect down to zero, they become as light as photons, and they look like light forms. You're not seeing mass anymore when they're in mm -hmm. these higher frequency states. And, and that's why it's important to know the physics so you know what to look for and what you're looking at when you see it. Well, and, and maybe uh, just for the benefit of people who aren't real familiar with the ideas of quantum mechanics and quantum physics, let's talk real fast about the nature of waves and particles when we get at these, uh, at these levels again real quickly. Well, okay, initially you have Niels Bohr, who is you know, one of the early quantum physicists, who shows that the hydrogen atom, which is the most simple atom, one electron, one proton, one proton right? When the electron, imagine the electron is, let's just say for a model, it's one foot away from the proton in the center. And it orbits around in you know, spiraling, circling orbits, just like our planet orbits around the sun, but it's kind of erratic. And all of a sudden, that electron jumps into what's called a shorter shell or distance from the center of the, the proton. So now it's only, let's just exaggerate and say it's a half a foot from the proton. Okay. So if it's, you know, just like two, you know, horse, uh, horses racing on a track, if they're both going 30 miles an hour, if one goes into a, a uh, you know, tighter uh, orbital track or, you know, around the track, it's going to make more orbits per second than the mm. one further out, right, right, more right. revolutions per second. So its frequency, meaning how frequently it oscillates around the center, well, the right. nucleus of the atom is higher. Right. But what happens, what Neil Bohr found, is that when the electron goes higher frequency, it radiates off its energy. Okay. And, and with, in an Einstein formula, energy and mass are equivalent. Mm -hmm. So when it gives off a little bit of its energy, it gives off its mass, which okay. means it reduces its mass. Right. But then quickly it jumps back out to its original orbit position, and it gains back its energy and its mass. But that little wobble, that little deviation proved that mass is not constant. constant. It's a ma mass and gravity are also equivalent. Mm. You measure gravity proportional to mass, mm. not to, to spin, of the Earth's spin. It's, it's the Earth's mass that, that gives us its gravity ratio. So if you reduce the mass, you consequently affect its gravity state. Okay. Now, what, later what happens, much later, um, it, it's Paul Dirac who decides to strip the electron-anti-electron pairs. Every particle, by the way, has an antiparticle. A proton spins positive. It has an antiproton that spins negative. An electron spins negative, and it has an anti-electron that spins, spins positive. Okay. Everything's in duality in mass, and that, that's a much deeper subject. <laughs> Isn't it? But <laughs> light is the only particle we know of initially that, ha that has no um, antiparticle. It spins positive. 
and it's one of the secrets as to why it can move so quickly. But what happens is, what this shows us is that first that there's a wobble, that mass is not constant as, as it appears to be. Then Paul Dirac takes the electron-anti-electron pairs away from the protons, and he finds they spin into infinitely smaller radial orbits or higher frequency orbits, and they disappear, and it becomes this huge debate. And he pretty much proves that the moment they disappear is the moment they gave up their mass, which means they gave up all of their energy mass equivalent, which means they attain zero mass. Right. The very idea, when you tell most physicists today who don't know about Dirac's work, that you can attain, you can take mass and convert it into light, you can get, you can attain zero mass, they think you're crazy. <laughs> but when you can, you know, a Nobel Prize winning physicist is telling you he, he sees it in the bubble chamber, in the spark chamber, then it's happening. They right. just don't know what it is because they didn't know what to look for. Mm. And the reason I recognized it is because I knew what to look for. I was looking for zero mass particles. Right. I was looking for, for that moment, that mass. The electron is the uh, lowest mass amazing. particle we know of. Right. It is the closest thing to a photon there is. Mm. And, and that is that's that little quantum leap that it makes is the point that I'm looking for. Right. Now, if you can do it on a quantum model, ultimately, you can wave transform mass, and you can do the same thing to a spaceship. You can alter it. You can reduce it. Ultimately, if you can attain zero mass, you can do light speed on two volts. You don't really need energy anymore. You know, it's all about transforming right. mass. Right. And right. When, you, when you start to understand the cause of inertia, the, the big problem in accelerating mass or spacecraft or aircraft... That gets even more interesting because it leads you to the ultimate um, theoretical work on... Because in, in the year 2001, when Evidence the Case for NASA UFOs came out in my book, I not only did I show how spaceships can attain zero mass, but I showed how they could break the speed of light. And when I did that work on a theoretical model, two years later, a Cambridge physicist named Zhao Maguizhou who was on Larry King, you know, talking about his new book called Faster Than the Speed of Light, <laughs> he finally, after, you know, numerous approaches, hundreds of approaches, breaks the speed of light with photons. And he did it exactly the same way I did, to a T. There is no difference between the way we did it. But my work predates his by two years. Awesome. And it's possible he copied me. I don't know. But I'm not a, you know, I'm not a Cambridge physicist. I'm a free-thinking physicist. Right. I've, studied, I've worked with major... Ph.D. physicists and Nobel Prize winners, but I've never got a Ph.D. Now, why did I do it the same way he did it, and I'm two years before him? I think I'm really on to something here. And then when I study Paul Dirac's, you know, his secret, you know, his, his little-known paper on, the, you know, the Dirac's equation in the sea of negative energy, which people can read about in my paper on your, you know, posted on your website. Yeah, I, I imagine that that's involved in the propulsion paper. Yeah, but now when you get to the speed of light and say you're doing ten times the speed of light, it's still not fast enough. I mean, light is too slow. It's, light is not allowing us to see our universe in real time. Real time means right now. When we look at Andromeda right now right. through the Hubble, we're seeing it as it was 2.2 million years ago because that's how long it takes light to get here from Andromeda. Right, so we have no idea what it looks like right we now. We have no idea what it looks like now. So light is lying to us. It's not communicating to us in real time. So when you think that the entire Einsteinian theory of relativity relies on the speed of light to give us our information, it's, it's not even telling us the truth about what's going on in real time. So how can you use that? 
as a tool for relativity, I ask, and I challenge. So what can you use? And this is when when I was so frustrated with even 10 times the speed of light or 100 times the speed of light, and, and now it's been done at the University of California at Berkeley. Raymond Chow got photons, light particles, to go multiples of the speed of light, and he did it exactly the same way I did it. And, you know, I've even tried having conversations with Raymond Chow, but because Raymond Chow didn't understand why his photons were going so fast, and I did, huh. because they were they were they were going ultra high frequency, and they were reducing even more of their alleged zero mass, which I I don't believe is really zero mass. But anyway, so then I'm looking for something called singularity, and and when you understand the cause of inertia, resistance, uh, you can understand where this ultimate holy grail is called singularity. Singularity. Is the, is the only theory that will not only unify all the existing nuclear forces into one TOE or theory of everything, but it allows for instantaneous travel anywhere in the universe. And I, kn- I already knew what it, w- what it looked like in, in theoretically, but I didn't know where to find singularity. It, it is beyond all waveforms. Singularity is not a wave. Waves are duality. And when you really look at particles as particle wave pairs, you'll find everything in nature, mm-hmm. everything in the atom is coded with duality. And if you go back, I mean, even you know, phys- I mean, spiritually, if we go to the Bible, book of Genesis, you look at the book of Genesis, and you know, some people think this book is a myth, but to me, this is, this is the, the book that has the deepest code in physics embedded in it. I mean, everything you want to know about physics is in Genesis. So Adam and Eve are naked. They're in the Garden of Eden. God warns of them, never partake of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you do, you'll surely die. So what is this good and evil? I mean, why is it so bad to know good and evil? Well, if you look at good and evil in its entirety, you don't separate good from evil. It's a conflict. And... And conflict is duality. And if you feed that knowledge of good and evil to ten, you know, six billion people, the problem is they interpret what is good and what is evil differently or uniquely. And what that does is it just breeds conflict. My religion is right and yours is wrong, or the way I interpret my religion is better than the way you did, and we're going to have a fight about it. And, you know, that's what goes on out there. But that is spiritually inertia. Inertia is resistance. If I say this is good and you say no, that isn't good, this is good, you're going to impose a different view on what is good against me, and you're going to create pressure for me to move my idea forward because your idea counters mine. Mm-hmm. That's metaphysical inertia. That's spiritual inertia. And then if you want to start a business and you're going to do it a certain way, somebody else tells you, well, I'm going to do a business similar to yours, and I'm going to compete with you. That produces mm-hmm. pressure, or competition, inertia. That's our whole, you know, metaphysical model of our universe but when you look at the atom itself oh my god it's coded with the same thing that happened in genesis the atom is a protons positive and electron negative right positive negative good and evil and those two little guys the reason most physicists say the atom has overall it has no electromagnetic energy on it is because one spinning positive and one spinning negative on the same axis cancels each other out to near zero or zero. Mm-hmm. And then you look at the electron, and the electron has an anti-electron, and those guys are spinning in opposite directions. But everything is canceling each other out right. because it's a competition. It's conflict. What actually, what actually causes inertia is that the universe, the, 
as we know it is duality. It's in a duality. It's not single. It's in this state of of positive and negative energy. So, and and they push up against each other because they're attracted to each other. Positive and negative forces are attracted to each other, but as they rush towards each other, they produce resistance and inertia. Right, right, right. So that's why when you move a boat through water, the water pushes against the boat because it's a duality. Mm-hmm. When you move an air, you know, a jet through air mass, the air mass pushes against the boat. Now, when you look at all of the particles, and interestingly, they're required. In fact, it, you know, air is required for the plane to fly. Water is required for the boat to move. It is required, yeah, because it's a relationship. They yeah. need each other right. to move. Right. But when you when you want to when you understand what causes inertia is that duality, that, that positive-negative pressure canceling each other out, to go ultimately to attain instantaneous travel in the universe, you have to, come over, you have to overcome all inertia, all resistance. And that's what ultimate superconductivity means, no resistance in a circuit. So we go back to my dream about the UFO when I see the two lights spinning in opposite directions on the same axis. We're getting into the model of duality of all atoms. Every atom in your body, every atom in a lake, every atom in the universe is spinning in these dual pairs. So, and of course, the Book of Genesis, we can understand that that happened on a on a psychic level, on, on a on a conscious level, and that duality caused war. It caused arguments. It caused fighting. It caused Disease in the body, it caused aging. It actually gives birth to time. Mm, yes, Very deep subject going history. into right, right. cause of inertia, cause of time, cause of Einstein's four dimensions, cause of the Big Bang, how the universe actually starts is at, at a point of singularity. In singularity, there's no duality. Jesus says in the Gospel of, of uh, Matthew 6.22, If thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be filled with light. Well, mm. It's interesting because light appears to be the only particle in physics that is single, that has no duality in it, not inside of it. But then you look at light and you go, okay, it's the fastest thing we know of, but it's not instant. So what's slowing light down? Mm. What is its dual partner? What's resisting light? What's resisting it? What's causing it inertia? And we quickly find that Einstein's cosmological constant, the background of space, Mm which is this invisible force, is producing negative pressure, and light spins positive. So as light moves through the medium of space, it's producing pressure against it because they, they're attracted to each other and they rush towards each other. So then you find that light is caught in duality. It's the biggest duality, and it's the hardest one to see because it's such a massive wave pair. So you go, if everything is in duality, where and, and, and that duality is causing inertia, how do I get anywhere... And how do I get beyond inertia? How do I get beyond conflict and resistance? And you find, like, firstly, I started studying the the, the spiritual models, like the Gospel of Thomas, Mm. discovered um, in Egypt in 1945 and translated at Princeton University and other major universities. Jesus is constantly referring to singularity. He's Mm. constantly saying, if you make the two one, Mm. and then you tell the mountain to move, it will move. He's Mm. telling you all of his miracles were attained and he says, I come from the single place. Hmm. And it's really amazing stuff to read, but in yeah, the physics yeah, the, model. The, 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 the Gnostic uh, Gospels in general, yeah. And the Thomas yeah, Gospels you'll see it everywhere in Thomas. And hmm. I'm writing a book on singularity right now, which yeah, is there. I'm, I'm looking at it, actually, uh, at uh, davidsarita.blogspot.com. There's a post there about it. There's a post about 
my upcoming book on singularity. But so now what happens is, once again, Paul Dirac, you know, the legendary physicist who writes this rejected paper, rejected by the mainstream community because they don't understand what he does, he finds this substratum to the entire universe that he calls and he mislabels, I say he mislabels it, he calls it a sea of negative energy, not the same as dark energy. And the sea of negative energy as he knows it is the birthplace of all matter. And he says that if a duality tries to enter this sea of negative energy, duality is positive and negative, the sea of negative energy doesn't allow it and it spits it back out. You can only enter the sea of negative energy if you're negative energy itself, it, it, which means it's a singularity. Right. There is no dual pairs anymore in this sea that Dirac proposes. But the first thing Dirac realizes is that if you enter this sea of singularity, which is what its correct term is, there's no resistance because there's no duality. And he, and, he, and he goes, oh, my God, you could be anywhere in the universe in zero time. In fact, there is no time and there's no movement because you literally, once you enter it, you're already everywhere. You're everywhere at the same moment. At the same moment in time. In fact, there is no time. Hmm. Time is caused by duality. It's a slowing down. If you, if you, just for a brief moment, before we go deeper into singularity, look at the Big Bang model. Scientists cannot explain at the moment of the Big Bang why the velocity was so great, and then as, as the universe expanded, it started slowing down and heat was formed. Now, at singularity, there is, all, there is no resistance, so any velocity is possible. But as soon as duality is born out of singularity, mm. what happens is inertia is born resistance. Things start slowing down. And as soon as you encounter resistance, you get friction and you get heat, and the universe starts to heat up, Amazing. which explains the even temperature of the cosmic microwave background mm. radiation, which relativity cannot explain right. why that temperature is consistent when it should be a variable temperature. If the universe started at a big bang point at an infinitesimally hot temperature and started cooling off over time, the background should be a gradient temperature rather than a, a uniform one. So Dirac realizes, oh my God, I can solve the problem of why the microwave, the cosmic microwave background radiation is uniform. Because at the point, of every, everything came from singularity. At that point, there is no resistance, so there, so there is no distance in time. It's when time was born and resistance is born that the universe slowed down and started cooling off. Amazing. And that's why the uniformity is everywhere in, in the background. In the background radiation. You can, with singularity, virtually you can not all, you can unify all the forces together. And, and what I'm doing is kind of I'm kind of picking up Dirac started this, but I'm going way deeper into it and kind of expanding on it in both the the spiritual model and the physics model and kind of unifying them together in one one work. And there is a brief. Um, synopsis of singularity at the end of my uh, advanced propulsion paper also. So if you enter this sea of singularity, you're already everywhere anyway. The only the only thing to really do is to, if you want to come back into the dual universe and go to the Andromeda star system, you simply, you simply literally have to know the code for Andromeda, the frequency of Andromeda, and singularity will spit you back out instantaneously in Andromeda if you can enter it. Hmm. And if you enter singularity and you want to be, you know, anywhere on the Wherever. other side of the universe, right. you just have to know the code of that part of the universe. The frequency 
the dimensions of the wave formations of that part of the universe, and you're there. You'll be there instantly because there's no resistance and singularity. But when you're in it, I propose, and my, my dad, being a psychologist, went, oh, my God, this this literally proves the existence of God because that is what all of the great mystics of all of the great religions have spoken about, that enlightenment in Buddhism, nirvana, is beyond duality. Right, and beyond state, time. It's the state of oneness yeah. where there is no more duality. The, the, the conflict is over, the, the, you know, in that sense. And that, you know, in, in, in physics, in a sense, uh, we've proven that God actually exists. <laughs> this force of God actually is real. But when you enter it, you're already everywhere anyway. I mean, Jesus said, and I am the Alpha and the Omega, I'm the beginning and the end. And that time is just, is really an illusion. From, from the perspective of singularity, everything has already happened. But when you enter into duality, it hasn't, because you're, you're in this, you're trapped in this matrix of time. Right, right. And that's where things get all linear. That's where things get all linear. Yeah, exactly. And, and that linearity is really, it was really born out of duality, out of the duality of, of the dual pairs. But it's fascinating to see scripture consistent with physics, that, you know, the duality in the Garden of Eden is, is what the atom is coated with. The very fact that the atom is coated with it everywhere is proof to me that it, that it actually happened, that the fall actually occurred. Yeah, you know, and, and I think that, uh, I've seen examples of that in other, uh, historical documents as well. In fact, uh, a friend of mine who you may be familiar with, Dr. Paul LaViolette. Yeah, uh, I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, he, um, he's done extensive uh, research and writing over, over close to 30 years now uh, about, and, and in fact, your work ties very closely in with, with, with Paul's, and, mm -hmm. and it, you, he might be somebody that you might want to contact at some point. But uh, at any rate, um, he, he has found much of what you talk about in the Tarot, believe it or not. And I think there are intimations of this in many of the ancient mysteries and, and the historical documents. Yeah, I think that there are, there are many ancient civilizations that, you know, once they attain singularity, they're, they're so evolved that there's no need to... I mean, even, even if you understand aging in the human genome, what causes it is resistance, hmm. friction which is competition in the cell structure. Right, heat again. They, they can't, they're fighting each other. They're canceling each other out. It's dis-ease. But when you're singular, when Jesus says if you, if you make the two one, he actually says this in the Gospel of Thomas, Thomas very yeah. different than Matthew. Matthew says, if thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be filled with light. But if thine eye be evil, thy body shall be filled with darkness, which almost proposes duality once again. Right. But the same thing is written in Thomas, and I think Thomas is more correct. Well, and it's interesting that, 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 that Thomas is, is one of the number of, uh, of Gospels that, that is not included in the typical uh, Bible of today. Oh, yeah, because it's just Thomas is so advanced. Right, right? I mean, it, 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 it doesn't promote the agenda of the, of the church, no. quite frankly. No, Jesus says in Thomas, if and I be single... Thy whole body shall be filled with light, but if thy body be divided, you, you'll be filled with darkness. Thy mm. body will be filled with darkness. So the, the divided is the key. The duality is the cause of conflict, mm. the cause of you know egos clashing against each other, the mm. madness of that, the cause of war, the cause of you know love is a state of union where there's no conflict. So love ultimately is a singularity in its highest state. But um, Thomas is really wow. miraculous. Yeah, the, the Thomas Gospel, and I, I, I didn't figure you and I'd end up talking about Thomas, but, but it's it's an astonishing 
work, and anybody who's interested in the Christian tradition should certainly read Thomas if they never have. Oh, yeah. It, it correlates to this physics, I mean, literally. To me, Jesus is the ultimate physicist, because here we are now. Jesus was talking about singularity in Thomas, and he, of course, even in the Gospel of Philip, he said, in this world there is good and evil. Its good things are not good, and its evil things are not evil. He's not really saying he... He supports evil. What he's saying is good and evil is an illusion that causes the conflict on the earth and, and the wars and all of the madness. But if you end this conflict, you attain singularity, and it's by singularity that you can accomplish any miracle. You can tell the mountain to move, and it will move. Right. Everything is really what we're possible. trying to do here. We're trying to move mountains. We're trying to make a spaceship move through the cosmos in zero time. Hmm. Um, because even 100 times the speed of light is not going to get you to Andromeda. It's not going to get you very far at all. Right. I mean, when we th- when we think about the scope and the size of, of, of the galaxy alone, much less the, the intergalactic space, it's just too big. It's too big. And, it, and the, it's like a code. You know, God created this universe with these star systems so far apart that we could not disturb one another mm. until we evolved spiritually wow. and we attained singularity. Interesting. And hey. if you attain singularity, you're beyond conflict and war. You're not interested in that anymore. You're, you're in the singularity. You're in the, you know, in the divine state of, of, you know, right. of pure God's love, and there's no war in that. Mm. There's no need to fight mm. in that state. And when you attain it, you get this gift. You get to move about the universe freely. Hmm. Hey, D- David, let me ask you. I, I have a question about... Uh, distances again, because we've been talking. We, we we were talking earlier about light and the idea that light actually does uh, meet resistance mm-hmm. in space and that it slows down. Mm-hmm. And th- this, to me, has implications with the ideas of redshift and blue shift and this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, is it reasonable to assume that perhaps? We don't really understand exactly what the size of these things are because that's how it's measured typically. I know exactly. We're, we're measuring, you know, there's new evidence in what are called biophotons, plants, you know, and the human body gives off living photonic energy mm. versus like dead radio waves. And there is, there is some evidence that biophotons can communicate in real time. So one day we may find a force that we can use as a tool to measure our universe in real time and see things as they really are as opposed to the illusion that light is giving us right now. Right. I mean, it's a beautiful illusion when you're looking at a tree or, you know, you know your wife or, or, you know, whatever, you know, you find to be beautiful. But when, when you consider that even if two people are watching a car accident and one is 10 feet away from the accident and one is 100 yards from it, you know, when did the accident accident actually happen? Nobody knows because the person 100 yards away will say it happened when he saw it. But... You know, it took longer for the light to get to him than the guy ten feet away. Right, right. And they'll argue about when it actually happened, and no one really knows. Right. We can't even predict an event accurately in real time. It just appears that way over short distances. So, what will the universe look like in singularity? I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing to find out. Maybe it is going to be like the Matrix. This whole thing is just a, is just a, a mirage, an illusion created by this fabric. Know, that is duality. I mean, there are there are gospels in the Nag Hammadi library that describe that as human beings partook of this duality, good and evil, they were thrown to the lowest region of all matter, and that is what duality is. It's the most primitive. I mean, here we are on a planet where you know we're fighting religious wars. The you know, Muslims are 
fanatical Muslims believe that their interpretation of God is better than American Christians, and and then you have you know the Jews fighting the Muslims, and you know, everybody hates each other because they think they got it right, right. and the other guys got it wrong. I mean, right. that's the illusion here. That's the nonsense. When you get past all that, God doesn't care if you, if, you know. It's not about who's got it right and who's got it wrong. It's about ending the conflict and coming into a real integrated peace. I mean, that's the moment we're going to evolve into the star systems and being able to explore a universe. we got to get into the singularity to get there. Right, right, right. And it's interesting that you mentioned love as a singularity before, and, and, and w- mm-hmm. w- without trying to sound uh, 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 New Age hocus-pocus about it, yeah. it really is interesting because one of the definitions of love is... Uh, and I and I paraphrase, but it has to do with the uh, the dropping of the misunderstanding between two ent- entities, but still being able to move forward with some kind of union. Yeah. And uh, the, the, that 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 to me is is a beautiful uh, representation of what you're talking about. Exactly. I mean, it's it's a miracle um, to, just to find somebody in this world that that you love. It was actually when I was having dinner with Dan Aykroyd, he introduced me to my my uh, fiance, the, the woman that I'm going to huh. marry, and uh, she she has a good mind for a lot of the stuff, and she's a jazz singer and huh, wonderful. And it's it's just amazing, amazingly long journey just to find someone huh. that you can that you can just you know let go of all that you know that yeah, stuff you can, and just love each other. Yeah, drop the veil. Yeah. But that's what's missing out there. That's why we're fighting all these wars. That's why we have to spend hundreds of billions of dollars fighting wars because we don't, you know, we see things so differently in this world. We really believe, I mean, there are fanatical Muslims who really believe their their interpretation of Islam is better than, than any, anybody else's, and they kill each other. I mean, Saddam Hussein killed his own people. Imagine if, if Republicans and Democrats went to war because, or if Bush killed all the Democrats. That's what that's what uh, it, life is like if you live in in Iraq. I mean, mm. he starved the, the Kurdish rebels because they were opposed to him. You know, democracy is is far more evolved than, than these dictatorships, but it still has its problems. I mean, mm. we still have our our problems in our democracy because it's you know it's, it's not true pure democracy. Right, right. Well, and 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 to sort of close the circle, one of the problems that we have with our democracy is the fact that there's a tremendous amount of influence uh, by large corporations and, and, and some of those corporations have energy interests and uh, uh, in my opinion as we've talked about all night a, a solution a real solution to the energy issue uh, makes the singularity all that much more possible for for individual people I think because it takes a tremendous amount of pressure off of uh, a lot of different things. Yeah, I mean, if you right now, I mean, solar panel technology is so good. I lived in a solar-powered house in New Mexico for a year working on a film about that. And, you know, I have my big TV working, my washer and dryer, huh. and I've got my big Macintosh computer working. When you have everything working on solar panels, and you, you never suffer. I mean, if I have three days of cloudy weather, I won't watch a movie that night. Big deal. <laughs> I can watch it the next day when I get a little more power. But you do get power on cloudy days with solar panels, too. If you add a wind generator in there, even on a cloudy day, you can get uh, you know, get a lot of power. Plenty of energy. There's, yeah. the, the, the technology is already there to be sustainable and to stop the global warming. 
and build a, a healthy platform where we can ultimately explore these very advanced techniques for attaining light-speed travel and beyond. And we, we have to go there eventually. I mean, someone else has figured it out. I mean, we, we, when, you, when you see a bird fly, you want to fly. When you right. see a UFO, you're like, how did you do that? Right. I yeah. want to know because oh, I want to know what's out there. Yep, you made the, you, you made the, the great uh, uh, point earlier when that, that we're, we're like a child in a, in a bedroom looking out the window, and I'm with you. I want to go out there, and I always thought I was going to be able to. Yeah. And, and, and for, for 35 years now, I've watched nothing happen. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we're now critical, though. And, and, in fact, the space travel side of it, like you say, becomes something that we have to work out a little bit later. What we have to do now is stabilize the patient, so to speak, and yeah. uh, get, get things back under control or, or, or finally under control on the planet with our, with our own petty tribal differences, etc., Get the energy thing worked out, and then maybe we can really have some fun. It's kind of like a reward. I mean, if you don't spend two hundred billion dollars a year on a, on a defense budget, you get to spend it on oh. other stuff. Yeah, yeah. And you know, if, if that's the reward you get. You get to free up all that energy and time. I mean, our greatest physicists are working on weapons. Put those same minds to work on advanced propulsion concepts and singularity. We can get there. Yeah. And I personally am working on this, and I have. I, I have a very clear idea on, you know, on how to produce easily anti-gravity. There are already scientists like John Hutchison. Mm-hmm. You'll see his levitating cannonballs in, in, in my films. And but I'm, I think we're going to be able to advance it and, and do a much more um, precise model of anti-gravity. That will be the first step. And then even with that, being able to levitate giant, you know, pieces of stone. Right. Stone masonry will come back, and the giant stone monoliths of ancient Egypt will be very possible right. to rebuild in a modern sense. Just that alone will be a revelation, but and we will be able to explore our own solar system with much greater ease. But to to attain zero mass spaceships, you know, that will get you to the speed of light. Singularity is very advanced, and that that will get us anywhere right. in the universe we want to go. Right. And I think those that's a good a good kind of map of where we should be headed, you know, to get there. But it's, you know, it, it's all about, you know, I even went to George Lucas with Industrial Light and Magic and tried to consult with them to give the vision of what some of these spaceships would look like and how they would fly and put it in films just to implant that seed in people's minds. And, and, and they didn't even want to talk to me over there. They were like, you know, who are you? And... And no, no, George doesn't want to talk to you. He already knows how they fly because they fly in the movies, but they're not really real. You know, he's breaking all the laws. And I love George Lucas. I love Star Wars. I'm a big fan. But I, when I see those ships flying around, I just kind of have a good laugh. Right. Yeah, I mean, he he did a great job with the films, and in fact, there's a yeah. beautiful mythology within those films. I love well. the mythology. It's all yeah. about good and evil. Yeah. And the conflict and yeah. ending the conflict. I mean. The force is beyond the conflict. Right. It's a unified field. It's such a great metaphor. You know, it really does show you the illusion of good and evil. On you know, it depends which side you're looking from. Right. You know, what, the guy who we call evil. What Professor Elaine Pagels at Princeton wrote a book called The Origin of Satan, and it documents historically the birth of this character. And everyone's calling the other Satan. Satan yeah. When I was in Saudi Arabia. I was reading books that everywhere that say Shaitan, America is Shaitan, the devil. They think, you know, they're so much more holy than us. Oh, they wear the robes and 
And, you know, even though they have as many crimes going on over there as we do, and oppression and some of the most unhappy women I've ever seen in my oh, life. Oh, my gosh, yeah. But they believe they're better than us, and they believe it so strongly they're willing to be fanatical. And and we've been the same. I mean, the Christian crusades were just as fanatical. Absolutely. Force conquering the Native Indians. and right. Everything we've ever done is, a, is is fanatical and egotistical. Right. The history of the planet is one of genocide. And so, and, and, it and is. So, so to, we've so all point, done it. To point a finger here and there is sort of missing the point. Yeah, we've all committed genocide. Right. There's hardly anybody who hasn't done it, you know, except for maybe the Buddhists. Yeah, maybe the Dutch up there in Amsterdam. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a few of them, yeah. yeah. They're probably hanging out well, there. Well, hey, uh, David, we're, I'm looking at the clock here, and we've got yeah. we got about five minutes left. And um, let me ask you a question that we really haven't touched on, and you can answer it with with or without as much detail as you want. But the idea of these craft uh, that they really exist, and that they're out there flying around, and 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 uh, you've been able to uh, glean a lot of information from them what do you think they are i mean do you really do do, do you think that they are uh alien entities that are that are actually you know uh, uh intelligently manipulating these craft from within them or do you think that they're that that it's you know some people say it's an earthly technology that uh, that's just way undercover that we don't know about or a combination of the two what do you I think, think there are, there are different levels of them there are ets that are probably confined to the solar system and could be even interdimensional uh, there are multiple mm. dimensions to even our own planet that we don't know about yet mm -hmm. um that are invisible dimensions and some of these you know a lot of the Go to ufoevidence.org on the Internet, and you'll see tons of photos from people's digital cameras on vacation of UFOs that surprise them. There there are other dimensions to Earth that we don't know. They Some of them may be traveling from Earth to Earth because they're just jumping dimensions. But I think some of them, the, the, ultimately the angelic are the most advanced and probably the only ones who can travel through the highest levels of singularity mm. and get anywhere they, they want in the universe in zero time. But there are some that are probably... Know, aliens that are very primitive in certain respects that need food sources and probably want to study us biologically like we dissect frogs out of ponds and you know they just think we're just an interesting critter and spread them out on the table and let's see what makes this this guy tick right. you know that kind of attitude same attitude we have towards animals so um but really the ones i'm interested in the most are the angelic you know the ones that don't mean us any harm that that want to see us evolve in a spiritual sense, as well as ultimately attaining singularity someday. Right, right. And, and, and again, maybe maybe I'm missing the point in, in even asking that question, because the point is about not so much maybe who they are or where they come from, but what they show us and what they allow us to maybe accomplish on our own. Well, I, I think the cross circles, um, it, it's a quantum physics lesson. Mm, it's yeah. a language of wave logic, wave physics. If you know particle waves and you look at those circles, it's all there. You know, if you read my paper, there's a huge section on, on crop circle yeah. physics. Yeah, and, and the it's a chalkboard. Yeah, they're he, trying to teach us something. I and agree. They've been very patient, and they're watching us destroy this planet. I think there'll be a point, though, when if, we, if we're too stubborn, we really don't believe this thing we're sitting on is alive. It's just like fleas. You know, they're sitting on a horse's back, and yeah. they go, this thing isn't alive, and they're drilling for oil and <laughs> sucking out the blood. And then all of a sudden, one day the horse, you know, hits you with the tail, and you're gone. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, M Mother Earth might just pull the scenery, you know. Oh yeah, I mean, look at the last year. This last year shows to me this thing is alive. It, no it, question. It is, it is furious, and and 
that's not this isn't furious this is just upset yeah when she gets furious we're gone yeah and i i, I look at it a lot of the time as you know we talk about mother earth and and this the, this this motherly image well i take that seriously and yeah, me and, too. and and she uh, as a mother does not want to most likely harm her children any of them whether they be human or or four-legged or flying no. and and uh so it's almost I see it almost as as a, such a struggle for the planet herself, but because she doesn't want this stuff most likely. But no, at the same time, you got to you got to preserve yourself. She's got if it comes to her own preservation, right. she will preserve herself. And and you know even the sun I believe is in a mm. dynamic quantum relationship with mm. the Earth. I'm, I mean, I'm there are wave particles that are in each other's orbits. They wave particles in quantum models, the atom and smaller, share information. When two waves cross each other, they share information. Right. The sun knows everything going on on this planet. And now at Duke University, they're saying that you know the, the solar flares, which started in huge ones in about the year you know, 2000, 2000. Oh, yeah, I follow the sun very know, closely, yeah. Is that in, in, a, 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 uh, you know, the cause of global warming, and is that going to take the heat off the oil companies? Not if you consider the dynamic that it's a relationship, hmm. that the sun may be giving an autoimmune response to the suffering that the earth, the earth is sending out suffering signals. The sun responds and says, okay, I'm going to fry these, <laughs> these critters on your backs. And yeah. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. Right, right, right. That's how call the body the, works. Call the doctor, you know. Call the doctor. Call the sun. <laughs> It'll heat things up. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, David. We are just about out of it here, but we covered a whole lot of material tonight. And uh, there's a whole yeah, lot did. more too. Yeah, we'll have to do another show. Yeah, we'll definitely get together and we'll do this again. But we'll we'll uh, we'll call this one quits for now, and we'll let people uh, suck this up and and uh, incorporate it and let it, let them let them dwell on it for a while. And in the meantime, we've got uh, all the information on the web. The 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 show itself will be up in the archives within 24 hours or so, and uh, we'll put uh, put some links up to make sure other people get a chance to listen to it as well. Yeah, that'll be great. All right, well, look, uh, gosh, I wish uh, I, two hours always uh, sounds like a long time, but then uh, goes by really quickly. But uh, when, it, when it goes by quickly, I always know that it was a really uh, intelligent and interesting guest. So thanks very much, David. Thank you, Mike. Good chatting with you. Yeah, it's been wonderful. And uh, one more time, ladies and gentlemen, my guest has been David Sarita. And, David, do me a favor. Just stick around on the phone just for a moment, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, David Sarita, his website is www. Uh, dot NASA UFO dot Terra T E R R A dash E N T dot com. You can also find him at David Sarita D A V I D S E R E D A dot blogspot dot com. And you can link to all this stuff uh, from MikeHagan dot com. We are going to get things going here on the way out the door with one more song by Derek Jenkins, and this is actually an untitled song that he played live on Open Mic Radio just a few months ago. We'll finish things with that. Come on back next week. I'll be talking to Michael Tsarion, and it'll actually be a, a, a show that will probably dovetail a little bit with this one, with David. Uh, but anyway, Michael Tsarion next week. We've got Graham Hancock the following week, and lots of great stuff coming up in, uh, uh, in the new year. So thanks, as always, for listening, and uh, check us out on the web, always at MikeHagan.com, and uh, enjoy yourself for the next week. One more big thanks to David Sarita, and we'll talk to you all next week. Take care.
just ask the sea, or my other tendencies away. 